Downington. We have um, some surprising news today. We have Tucker Carlson defending Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and Bernie Sanders, and it's actually it's actually pretty amazing how um, fairly robust the defense is. He just flat out comes out in favor of a of a pretty good policy. Now, uh, there's always a trick you got to look out for with Tucker, though. The the trick is. He will use left-wing ideas to try to push right-wing politicians. And um, that's really scummy and really fucked up and pretty transparent. But outside of that, on the actual issue itself, you're going to be shocked to see the position that he's taken. And uh, perhaps nobody is more shocked than, than yours truly, me. So we got that. We, we're going to lead with a story here uh, involving Hansy Uncle Joseph and how he just loves coming out in favor of corruption. And he did it in uh, his last campaign in a pretty brazen and disgusting but also uh, rather hilarious way. So we're going to talk about that as well. Um, and then what else do I have for you? Uh, in the first block still, we have Ben Shapiro versus Andrew Neal who's a British conservative, and the memes that have <laughs> come about as a result of this interview are just absolutely legendary. There's a whole lot of uh, you know videos being uploaded to Pornhub that says Ben Shapiro destroyed by BBC, <laughs> which has two meanings. <laughs> I think most of you already know it, so I don't have to repeat it, but uh, if you don't know it, you better ask somebody. <laughs> Because it is beyond hilarious. So we're going to break down that. We have President Trump made a totally incoherent statement in regards to um, the administration's escalation escalation with Iran. So you don't want to miss that. And forget about it. I got basically an endless um, docket of stories here. I don't know if docket is an appropriate word for that sentence, but nonetheless, I used it. All right, so without further ado, let's get started. <laughs> 
And um, we'll do that, like I said, with Hansy Uncle Joseph and his new absolutely embarrassing um, situation. I got I got I went back to a different mic today. I'm gonna see, you know, if I like it or not. Um, the positioning could be a little bit more in front of my face. So I think I like that, but anyway, <clears throat> here we go. So we have some more of Hansy Uncle Joseph's greatest hits here for everybody. He discussed the issue of corruption in his last presidential campaign, and he basically confirmed my worst fears about him. So let's take a look, and then we'll discuss. in the system is just a duh. It's just like, well, what do you mean? This is how it works. This is how it functions. What are you, like a naive child? Do you not get it? Here are the dynamics. Let me explain it to you. And sure, it might be corrosive, but it's human nature. So what are we going to do? Are we going to rewire human nature? Is that even possible? No. So listen, learn the ropes, son. It's got this... um, it smacks of this snobby attitude of like, wake up, you child. Like, this is, this is the real situation. Now, you might not like all the nooks and crannies of how this functions, but this is how it functions. And listen, the thing is, that's exactly what we don't like about you, Joe, is that he doesn't question the fundamental premises of our rotten system. And that's why he can't be the nominee, because the, the whole technocratic, neoliberal, wonky approach to politics, where you basically do as good as you possibly can, but within the confines of our grotesque, disgusting, rotten system, we are fundamentally past that as a nation. And it's time to basically implement a radical new way of doing politics. And by radical, what I actually mean is just catch us up to the rest of the developed world and actually rewind the clock a little bit to FDR-style politics. And, you know, this is why he's such a fundamental letdown, is he's he's got this aura about him of, like, I'm just a working class guy. You know, I'm just, I'm just Uncle Joe over here, and I'm fighting. I'm on the side of unions. He said that in a recent speech. And it's like, hey, asshole, you voted for NAFTA. You voted for permanent normal trade relations with China. You pushed TPP relentlessly. You can't turn around then and say, me? I'm in favor of you guys. When every major vote 
that impacted working people, you were on the wrong side of it. But he has that aura about him. He's like, what do you mean? I'm like an older white guy who, who has no filter, so therefore I guess I have working class appeal, which is just like code word for older white racists um, it will perhaps vote for him because he's also an older right, maybe racist guy, there's an argument there because he fucking originally voted against and, and pushed against busing desegregation. So it's like, why would we go in the same direction that failed last time? Hillary Clinton versus Donald Trump. Hillary Clinton represented the same strand of democratic thought. And Joe Biden is trying to mask it somewhat at some times, at some times, but at other times he's just, he's letting it all hang out and he says shit like this. I mean, I mean, that clip really is disturbing to me because it confirms my worst fears about Joe Biden, which is the last thing he would ever do is question the premises of our system and say, no, 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 we need to rework this entire thing. This whole thing is broken. What he does, and he thinks this is like keeping it real, is he looks at it and he goes, well, there's certain things that we can't do because it's just so baked into the cake of the system, like the corruption. So we can't push back against the corruption. We can't totally redo campaign finance. We can't do the correct answers on many fronts, like Medicare for All, for example, which he's against. So I don't know. I'll just keep everything roughly the same and do as good as I can within the confines of that system. And that's, that's just the wrong approach. And that's an unacceptable way of thinking when we have multiple crises that require big, bold solutions. I mean, climate change, he, he just said the other day, I'm for the middle ground approach on climate change. There is no middle ground approach. What do you mean? There is no middle ground approach. We need to immediately start moving in the direction of getting off of fossil fuels and doing totally green and renewable technology. And even then you better buckle up because it's no guarantee that we're going to be able to reverse this in an adequate way. And we're still probably going to feel the brunt of some of the worst aspects of climate change. So, there is no middle ground, dude. Like, that's the thing. You look at a, a healthcare system where 44 million people are uninsured. We have 30 to 45,000 people who die every year because they don't have access to basic care. Medical bills is one of the top causes of bankruptcies. And your response is, meh, maybe expand on Obamacare and do a public option. Well, millions of people would still be uninsured if you did that. People would still die from not having access to basic health care if you did that. Medical bills would still be a top cause of bankruptcy if you did that. So the thing is, man, it's not even like he's corrupt, but he's acknowledging on some level, like, everything shouldn't be like this, dog. And if I was in control, I would, I would try to fix it. No, he's saying, well, of course. Of course I'm going to take the phone call. You gave me $250,000. Totally legal. That's what he said. It's totally legal. Yeah, but that's the problem, Joe. And when you look at a guy like Bernie, you go, oh, he's disgusted by that system, and he would do everything in his power to change that system. 
He would do everything in his power to make it so that's not even a thing anymore. Nobody can give hundreds of thousands of dollars or even thousands of dollars. So Joe Biden is just a total letdown. And there's that thing that happens as a general rule when people get older, which is it's like this naturalistic fallacy. They look at the way things are and they go, well, that's the way things are. So that's the way they're going to be. So they're not, they don't care to really go back to the, to the bottom floor, to the grassroots level and say, well, maybe we can like fundamentally redo the way a lot of this stuff works. They think that that's like pie in the sky, naive, childish garbage and bullshit. That's how they think. And I'm here to say, well, what if the exact opposite is true? And the problem is all these people who just want to do mild tweaks and they pawn off their failures to, that's just the way it is. No, there is no, that's just the way it is. If we see a problem, we should fix it. If we see corruption, we should end it. If we have a broken system, we should fix it. So it's just. It's terrible. And listen, I got to be honest with you guys, man. At first, there was, you know, one poll that had Biden leading by a lot. And I was like, okay, well, that's one poll. And the methodology is they're oversampling older voters. But now I've seen like five or six polls where he's leading. Now, can you say, hey, all of them have a, you know, a, a demographic bias? Possibly. But. Is it also time to say that as of right this second, he is the front runner? Yeah, I mean, yes, you can say that. I think that even if you include, at, right now, at this very second, even if you include um, more younger voters in the polls, Biden would still be leading. Now, it won't be by as much as the polls are saying, but I think he would still be leading. And there has been a noticeable uptick since he announced that he's running. And with Bernie, he has kind of petered off a little bit. And that's even looking at an apples-to-apples comparison of Bernie, you know, back when he was the clear front-runner and Biden hadn't announced yet, with arguably the sampling biases where it's like, okay, they're oversampling older voters still, and Bernie was leading. And now Bernie has fallen off a little bit, and Biden has ticked up a little bit. Again, ultimately, I don't – I really don't think Biden is going to be the ultimate threat. But then again, I could be wrong. You know, it's very possible I'm wrong. And Biden kind of hangs on and, and pulls a Hillary in a sense where it's like he's just leading by default because he's got even more name recognition than Bernie at this point. Um, so it's almost like a default lazy man's like, yeah, whatever, Biden, sure. Um, and then he hangs on as a result of that. But my initial reaction is still that he's going he's gonna to kind of peter off a little bit as time goes by because it happened the last two times he ran for president. And I think the best predictor of future action is past action. Um, and I think that he's already showing he shoves his foot in his mouth and he doesn't have the chops to hold the Democratic base. Um, but having said that, as of right now, yeah, he is, uh, he is the front runner. And I think that's no matter how you slice it or dice it, even if they fix those polls and, you know, included more younger folks in it. So we gotta we gotta realize it for what it is, man, and we gotta we gotta make the case. And the Democratic establishment is gonna whine and yelp and bitch and moan and say, Well, you can't attack other candidates. No, no, no. 
This is a primary. The whole point of a primary is to distinguish between the candidates and say, hey, here's where they're different. So when we bring up Joe Biden's voting record, when we show clips of him saying, corruption, yeah, sure, that's human nature, it's the way it works. We're doing this for a reason. So people get educated and they know the deal. And they know, oh, okay, well, when there's, you know, a zillion other options, perhaps I don't go with the old jaded dude who fundamentally will not change the system in the radical way that it needs to be changed. Okay, next. We're going to go to Tucker Carlson. This one is going to surprise y'all. His little jabs piss me off. His little snide jabs, though. We'll talk about them. We will talk about them. We will talk about them. So Tucker Carlson did a surprising segment on Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and Bernie Sanders' bill to limit interest rates to 15%. Let's take a look, and then we'll come back and break it down. Bernie Sanders and Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez have a new proposal out. It's called the Loan Shark Prevention Act. Their bill would cap interest rates on credit cards at 15%. Well, for a lot of people, that would make a difference. The median interest rate on credit cards in this country right now is 21%, and some cards charge over 35%. Banks, meanwhile, can borrow money from the Federal Reserve at 3% interest. Do the math. It's a very good business. Now you know why they're always sending you those offers for new cards. They're getting rich from your debt. The bill would also apply the same 15% limit to consumer loans. It would ban, in effect, payday loans, those loans whose interest rates can exceed 5 or 600% every year. No doubt many Republicans in the Congress will oppose this bill, if only because of who sponsored it. Bernie Sanders and Ocasio-Cortez are obviously demagogues. They don't mean half of what they say. The other half they don't really understand. They're not impressive. But on this one issue, they are absolutely, indisputably right. There's a reason why the world's great religions condemn usury, and why societies have restricted it for thousands of years. High interest rates exploit the weak. Credit card debt destroys people, not just chronically irresponsible people, but good people, decent people, probably some people you know, maybe a lot of people you know. What the banks are doing is disgusting, and it's wrong. So the real question is, why did it fall to a couple of childish socialists to point this out? There's no reason that capping interest rates ought to be a left-wing issue. Most normal people agree with it, overwhelmingly. South Dakota, for example, is one of the most conservative states in the country. In 2016, its voters went for Donald Trump over Hillary Clinton by 30 points. And yet those very same voters also voted overwhelmingly to crack down on payday loans and cap the interest rates on credit cards. Historically, fighting usury has been a Republican position. In 1991, Republicans sponsored legislation to cap credit card interest at 14%. That's lower than what Bernie Sanders is proposing right now, for perspective. President George H.W. Bush endorsed that bill, and the Senate passed it. So why isn't it the law today? Well, in the words of the Chicago Tribune at the time, quote, 
five days of intense lobbying by banking interests and a one-day plunge in the stock market killed the bill dead. After that, Republicans decided to cave permanently. They became the party of Wall Street. What's interesting, though, is that Wall Street is no longer Republican, not even close. Wall Street is the economic engine of the Democratic Party. Finance titans went overwhelmingly for Hillary over Trump in 2016. Chuck Schumer is their own personal senator. They all have his cell phone, trust me. Big finance is one of the most aggressively liberal sectors in this country. If you're watching the show, they despise you. That all became very obvious in the last presidential election. The only people who didn't get that clear message are Republicans in Washington. They're on autopilot, still siding with the big banks over their own voters. It's a lunatic strategy. It won't end well. What happens when you refuse to give people what they desperately need? They go elsewhere. Republicans should not be surprised when that happens. Okay, so I have a lot to say about this. First of all, um, credit where it's due on saying, hey, 15% interest rate, capping interest rates at 15% makes sense. And it's not, even, it's not even close. It's obviously the right thing to do. Um, it stops uh, usury. Um, it basically stops loan sharking. And this is the kind of stuff where big financial institutions screw regular people, and it's not their fault. So credit on that, and this is not something you would see anybody who would be a potential replacement for Tucker Carlson at this time slot saying. It just wouldn't happen, Uh, which is why I always thought it was weird when it's like there's this advertiser boycott trying to get rid of Tucker and – I think it's rather obvious that he's more of a paleoconservative than a neoconservative, and he would 100% be replaced by somebody more like Kennedy, who's reliably wrong on every single issue, whereas at least Tucker has two or three areas where he'll surprise you and, go, and be right on it. So I just find it weird that it doesn't seem very thought out from a macro picture, the, the advertiser boycott against Tucker, and then also I'm, you know, I think there's a even broader question about whether or not advertiser boycotts are reasonable in the first place, and I think everybody knows my opinion on that. Um, Once you open up that door, first ones on the chopping block are the furthest left-wing voices. So, um, but anyway, I digress from that. The stuff that annoys me is the doublespeak. I mean, he really is speaking out of both sides of his mouth. So, first of all, Bernie and Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez are demagogues. They don't mean half of what they say and they don't know what they're talking about, and they're childish socialists. This is one of those instances where, remember back when you were in high school and the, and the teacher would correct something on your paper and write, citation needed? Citation needed, dog. What do you mean? What do you mean? They, they don't mean half of what they say. Really? How do you know that? You have no idea. What if they mean every single word of what they say? How about that? And by the way, that is the case. That is the case. I don't know um, Bernie, but I am a co-founder of Justice Democrats, and Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez is the most prominent Justice Democrat. She believes every word of what she says. So why, like, why the unnecessary fucking shiving in the side of these people? You're doing it because, you know, you're still, to some extent, um, mired in partisanship, and you have to do the virtue signaling to the far right. Now, I'm not saying they're actually totally right, even though they're totally right. I still hate them. That's what you're doing. Um, The idea that they're childish socialists. 
Tucker is smart enough to know that Bernie Sanders and Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez are mild social Democrats. When you look at their canon of uh, policy beliefs and stuff they would implement, it's like Denmark or Norway or Sweden. So for, he knows that they're not, quote, childish socialists. He knows that they're not that. But he says it anyway, again, because he's speaking out of both sides of his mouth. And to the idea that they don't know what they're talking about. I would put Bernie Sanders or AOC's, um, you know, knowledge on policy above literally, literally any senator or congressperson on the right. Literally. And I'm 100% going to win that bet. There's no way I lose that bet. Because that's their, their front and center for them is policy. Now, Tucker might pretend like that's not the case, but that's all they do is talk about policy. Um, and then the idea that they're demagogues. Why? Because they talk about things that are popular and people like it. Is that why they're demagogues? No, maybe they actually truly believe in, in these issues and they're putting them front and center. So it's just the unnecessary shiving in the side. But again, that serves a purpose. And then um, the other point that's just, this is the diversion. This is the bait and switch at the end of the segment is when he says, he's talking about how Wall Street and they're so bad. And then he goes, and it's obvious they're no longer Republican. They're massively liberal on Wall Street. Okay, Tucker. The fact that Wall Street executives are liberal on social issues means Dickie McGee's axe. It doesn't mean anything in the context of the economic issues that we're talking about. So they don't hate black people, and they don't hate gay people, and they don't hate immigrants. That's the extent of their liberalism. Now, in terms of on economic issues, they are deeply conservative and deeply in favor of our broken and disgusting status quo, which enriches them at the expense of everybody else in the country. Now, you're correct to point out that Wall Street executives and many owners of hedge funds and people like this, that they have backed Democratic politicians. They also back Republican politicians. In fact, it's a concerted effort on their part. It's a strategy by both political parties. They understand, hey, with the election, the winds change. That this is always the case. You're always going to, oh, Democrats win this one. Oh, Republicans win this one. Oh, Democrats win this one. Oh, Republicans win this one. So what do you do? You hedge your bets. You say, I'll buy all the Republicans, and I'll buy 80% of the Democrats, because 20% of the Democrats are unbuyable, um, and then I'm good. No matter who wins, I'm going to get favorable policy. So it used to be the case that Democrats were, their special interests were just a lot less scary. It'd be teachers and lawyers and unions and environmentalists. So that, those used to be the Democratic um, special interests, and that's it. But then in the 1980s and onwards, they decided, hey, we could take money from Wall Street too, because Wall Street used to only give to Republicans. And so they started taking money, and then that's now where you get the breakdown of the two wings within the Democratic Party. You know, the Bernie Sanders wing, the Justice Democrats wing, the populist left wing um, versus the corporate wing the establishment wing. Now, what he's trying to do is make that a wash and just act like, well, it's just, it's just the, the establishment on the Democratic side, and, and Wall Street is all in for them. And that's not an accurate portrayal. 
the Democratic establishment and the Republican establishment, and I'd go as far as to say the entire Republican Party in Washington, D.C., with no exceptions, they're doing Wall Street's bidding. Now, this gets to the most important point here, which is if Tucker Carlson is himself not a demagogue, well, he's repeatedly expressed these sorts of opinions. He said, well, you know, you should cap um, interest rates at 15%. Okay. Um, why is Jeff Bezos getting favorable policy and tax subsidies when we have our people are struggling in the country? Okay. So he agreed with Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez on the Amazon thing as well. Um, he's repeatedly gone after neocons and talked about how ending wars is something we should do. And it's terrible to do more of these regime change wars. Okay, good. We'll take it. He's also debated uh, Ben Shapiro. Ben Shapiro argues for a free trade approach, which is just, in this country, outsourcing. <laughs> like, just, let's just, just send all of our jobs overseas to, and pay people a dollar to do them and destroy the working class in this country. He's argued against Ben Shapiro and for a more protectionist approach to trade. Okay, good. I just gave you a list of policies that Tucker claims to support. But he, he always gaslights and does the bait and switch at the end and says, and that's why, you know, the, the, we can never support these Democrats. And he takes these populist policy ideas and then redirects people to supporting Republicans. So that is a trick because ultimately all the policies I just gave you, who supports those, those positions? The only people in the country that do are the populist left are the Justice Democrats, the all-revolution candidates, the Bernie Sanders-style Democrats. So the so-called far left, the only people in the country, in Washington, D.C., who are fighting for the things that Tucker says he believes in, people like Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, Ro Khanna, Tulsi Gabbard, Ilhan Omar, Bernie Sanders. So listen, it's really a test as to how well, shit he is. If Tucker decides, yeah, I'm actually not messing around about supporting this list of policies that I just laid out, okay, then what happens if in the general election it's Bernie Sanders versus Donald Trump? And according to your own words, you agree more with Bernie Sanders' philosophy than Donald Trump's philosophy. What then, Tucker? Are you going to come out in support of Bernie Sanders? Well, probably not. He's a Fox News host. He's on Fox News. Okay. Well, will you at least not openly support Donald Trump? Will you at least do, I don't know, maybe 50% critical coverage of Trump and 50% critical coverage of Bernie and kind of make it a wash so your audience doesn't know where you stand? What are you going to do? What are you going to do? See, that's the test as to whether or not he's a demagogue or not. If he's serious or if he's just trying to harness populist tendencies and redirect it for, report, for supporting standard Republican politicians. Now, I'm being kind and proposing this as a question. I'm not proposing this as a Oh, we all know what he's going to do. Now, we all have an instinct as to what we think he's going to do, but let's leave that off the table for now. Let's just focus on putting this question out there. So, Tucker, are you a demagogue or are you not a demagogue? Are you going to have the courage of your convictions? Do you really believe the stuff you're saying when you're on the right side of issues? Or, or, or is it that all those issues are ancillary to you and the real thing you care about is Fucking immigration. We got to keep those illegal immigrants out. We got to keep those brown folks coming through, uh, through the Mexican border out. 
So that issue overrides all the other four or five issues I just explained where you're nominally on the left, okay? And the immigration issue overrides all the other issues. So at the end of the day, hey, I got to support Trump because that issue is the king issue. It's the most important issue, and it's the one that supersedes and overrides all the other ones where I just said I kind of agree with the left wing on those issues. We'll see. We'll see now, won't we? But this is becoming a, a, a normal occurrence for Tucker, where he does the old, like, well, the left is right about ending wars. You know, the non-interventionists are right about that. Um, to be fair, Rand Paul and, and uh, you know, Justin Amash and some of the libertarians are right about that, too. But Tucker says, you know, hey, we should be more protectionist on trade. Yeah, we should crack down on Amazon. Yeah, we should crack down on the financial institutions and only let them charge 15% interest. Yeah, we should have policies that are more anti-Wall Street. If you say all those things and then ultimately you end up supporting Republican politicians, you didn't really mean all the stuff you were saying. Or simply the immigration issue where you agree with Republicans overrides all the shit you were saying about the issues where you're left-wing. So it's a test, man. Do you really believe it or are you just demagoguing? Because the other possibility is he might be smart enough to realize, hey, the writing's on the wall for the elitist, and I'm, I can't be an, an elitist because nobody wants that. Nobody likes that. So I'm going to be populist and then, again, just use that to redirect to support standard Republican politicians, which is snake oil salesman 101. If you would be the demagogue. You'd be, I'm going to tell you what you want to hear and then, you know, harness that energy and that support for you to support politicians who are not on the side of the shit we just expressed that we believe in. <laughs> so we'll see. But needless to say, man, you know, he was a supporter of Donald Trump, and Donald Trump ultimately has been an elitist president. His rhetoric was populist in many respects. But listen, when you appoint John Bolton and Mike Pompeo for foreign policy, and they're trying to topple Venezuela, they're trying to topple Iran, we're still in Iraq and Afghanistan, you didn't really believe in ending wars. When you uh, did massive deregulation of the economy yet again, and you cut taxes for the rich, you're not economically populist. When 93,000 jobs were outsourced under your first year as president, which is even more than Obama, and you ran as the anti-outsourcing guy, you don't really mean it. You don't really believe it. So, again, I pose this to Tucker in all sincerity. If you are, if you actually believe these things you say about policy, the only logical conclusion is you have to support the Bernie Sanders types, the Tulsi Gabbard types, the Ro Khanna types, the AOC types. And, obviously, it, it appears like you're not quite there yet. <laughs> You'd rather give lip service to how awesome all their policies are, but pretend like still, for some reason, whoa, you can't support them. They're crazy. That makes no sense, and I think you know that makes no sense. All right, it's time, baby. You know what it's time for? <laughs> time for... Ben Shapiro getting destroyed in the battle of ideas. All right, let's do it. Let's have some fun with this. So Andrew Neal is a host on the BBC, and she talked to Ben Shapiro about his new book, and things went haywire here. 
So the original interview is 16 minutes long. I don't have time to show you the whole thing here and now. Uh, but I'm going to show you as much of it as I possibly can. I think it's about eight minutes or so, so about half the interview. It's the more interesting parts. Let's watch, and we'll come back and discuss. I'm interested that you think there's a thought movement inside the Republican Party. I mean, how could the conservatives uh, run out of ideas in America? All the new policies, the Medicare for all, $15 minimum wage, the Green New Deal, they're all coming from the left, and they're popular. Well, frankly, I mean, frankly, I'm confused by the idea that any of those are, are particularly new ideas. I mean, most of those ideas have been around since Franklin Delano Roosevelt at the very earliest, or at the very latest, rather. Some of them go all the way back to Woodrow Wilson. But the idea that new ideas are absent in the Republican Party is obviously untrue. We have a, a very strong debate that goes on inside sort of the, the conservative halls of intelligentsia uh, about what is the appropriate action to take with regard to the medical system. Should global warming be considered uh, a real threat, or should global warming be, be considered something that technology will solve? And if so, what are the best, the best aspects of, of solving that? Now, there's a, there's a rich intellectual debate on the right about nationalism versus patriotism, for example, or populism versus free marketeerism. That debate is happening on the right to, to sort of suggest that the right in America is bereft of ideas, but the left is full of ideas. Number one, not all ideas are good ideas. I mean, AOC is pretty good evidence of that. I'm, I'm a big fan of some old ideas myself that I think are, are pretty good. But beyond that, I think that it is, it is intellectual uh, intellectual sneering of the highest order suggests that only the left has, has new and decent ideas. Some of the ideas that are popular in your side of politics uh, would seem to take us back to the Dark Ages, Georgia, new abortion laws, uh, which you are much in favor of, uh, that uh, a woman who miscarries could get 30 years. A Georgian woman who travels to another state for an abortion procedure could get 10 years. These are extreme hard policies. Well, okay, a couple of things. One, I'm not sure, I mean, frankly, I don't know whether you're, are you an objective journalist or are you an opinion journalist? I'm a journalist that asks questions. Okay, so you're, in a, you're a supposedly objective journalist calling policies with which you disagree barbaric and no, suggesting only one side of the political aisle no. has ideas. So I just want to point no, out that no, I, know I that wish you would at least be honest in your own bias. Mr. So Shapiro, are, 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 you, are you a member of this? in America is not so polarized that on one program you only have the left and another one you just have the right. My job well, is to question those who have strong views and put an alternative to them. If you were an anti-abortion person, I would be putting pro-abortion questions to you. But you are really, would you, would you, would you call the pro-choice so, so why don't so you just answer this. my question? Sir, sir, I'm happy to answer your question. Please answer this that. one. Would you, suggest, would you suggest that a late-term abortion is brutal? I'm not taking a view of abortion. Sir, you just suggested the pro-life position is inherently brutal and terrible, so I'm asking you, as an objective journalist, would you ask the same question to a pro-choice advocate by calling what their I'm, position brutal and terrible? What I'm horrible? asking you is that why is it that a bill banning abortions after a woman has been pregnant for six weeks is not a return to the dark ages? What's your answer? My answer is something called science. Human life huh. exists at conception. It ought to be protected. Now, back to my question to you. You purport to be an objective journalist. BBC purports to be an objective down-the-middle network. It obviously is not. It never has been. And you as a journalist are proceeding to call one side of the political aisle ignorant, barbaric, and sending us back to the dark ages. Why don't you just say that you're on the left? Uh, is it so hard for you? Why can't you just be honest? <laughs> Mr. Seriously, I mean, it's a serious question. 
This is your, if you only knew how ridiculous that statement is, you wouldn't have said it. Uh, again, it was your description of the State of the Union address in 2012 as fascist. fascist. The wording of, of President Trump's 2012 address was bad and wrong. That's all. There's plenty of things that are bad and wrong, but it doesn't make them fascist. Well, I suppose that's true. But if you would like to, again, if you'd like to read me the column out loud, I suppose I can critique it for you. Oh, well, again, with Mr. Obama, you said, Jew, and you, you're Jewish yourself, I only mention that because put this in context, the Jews who vote for Obama are, by and large, Jews in name only, Ginos, you call them. My statement was based on the fact that Jews in the United States, as an ethnic group, are largely irreligious, which is true by every single poll. Jews are the most irreligious group in the United States. As an Orthodox Jew who actually takes Judaism seriously, the point that I am making is that most Jews who are ethnically Jewish are not religiously Jewish no. in any context. No, no, no. The point you were making is that Jews who vote for Obama are Jews in name only. I said, I said that, yes, that is correct, that Jews who voted for Barack Obama, a progenitor of the Iran deal, a person who was cracking down on religious liberty, a person who spent much of his career as president of the United States attempting to deprive Israel of the necessities to defend itself, that, that people, Jews who voted for President Obama, by and large, cared about Judaism far less than they did about other priorities. Did you say they should Correct. turn their badge in as a Jew? Uh, yes, I believe that if you are a, I believe that if you are somebody who takes Judaism seriously, that comes along with ideological, ideological commitment. I mean, I guess... Also, I'm just... I mean, I, mean I, I hope you're having fun, by the way, going through every old tweet that I've ever sent to try and do gotcha questions, but if you'd like to have a discussion about my general philosophy or things I've done in, say, I don't know, that's 2012, so it's now 2019. If you'd like to discuss something I've done in, say, like, the past five years, why don't we do that? How about well, that? because your book is uh, a criticism of uh, how angry America is and how America has to do better. And I, I have an entire list out. on my website, sir. sir uh, on my list, I have an entire website. I'm, I, dumb I'm bad things trying to point out some of the things you, you've said that seem to me to help to stoke that anger. For example, you said sure. Israelis like to build. Arabs like to bomb crap and live in open sewage. Well, as I say in an article entitled, here's a list of all the giant, bad, dumb things I've ever said. Was that, that, that dumb? What? Yes, that's a dumb tweet, and not only, but it is also important to mention that the next few tweets clarify that that tweet is specifically referring to the Hamas leadership, which, no. by the way, a BBC I've seen is relatively reticent to condemn. No, actually, it wasn't what you went on to do and say, uh, you are correct about the slur in Arabs. It's not all Arabs that want to live in open sewage and blow things up. It's just Palestinians.
Christian culture and so on, but so much of what you said in the past would seem to turn its back on Judeo-Christian culture. You're lecturing me on Judeo-Christian culture after you called the pro-life position barbaric? I, I just really? asked you a question. And I asked you a question. You failed to answer a single one of mine. Frankly, I find this whole thing a waste of time. If you want to read the book and critique the book, why don't you read and critique the book? If you want to read, if you want to critique me, you can think whatever you want of me. Frankly, I don't care. I don't, I don't frankly give a damn what you you're, think of me because I've never heard of you. You and I've never heard of you until I briefed myself for this. But that's not the issue. You have a It's an interesting book. But my point is, your book claims that well, it'd be nice society, if you quote it from time to time. Your book is well. Actually, I've done so several times, and I'm about to do so again. If you would let me just finish the question, your book uh, frankly, claims that society you know what? Honestly, is turning honestly, its back sir, on Judeo-Christian values. What are the values it's turning its back on? I, I you know, I, I'm not inclined to continue an interview with a person as badly motivated as you as an interviewer. So I think we're done here. I appreciate your time. All thank right. Well, so thank you for your time and uh, for showing that anger is not part of American political discourse. Now, Mr. Shapiro, we'll say goodbye. Hot diggity damn, son. Hot diggity damn. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Oh, there's so much to say about this. Um, first of all, note the question that Ben Shapiro finally stormed out on. The question was actually really incisive. The question was, um, you know, you say in your book that we're turning our back on Judeo-Christian culture. What do you mean by that? How so? How are we turning our back on Judeo-Christian culture? And then he also, uh, you know, posed to him, well, you know, many of the things you say would be turning our back on Judeo-Christian culture. Now, I don't know what he was going to go on to argue there, um, but I think that that point is certainly true. The idea, like, oh, what, Ben Shapiro is, is embodying the philosophy of Jesus? They just, they use that as a stand-in to mean whatever they want it to mean when they say, Judeo-Christian culture, we're turning our back on Judeo-Christian culture. Well, Ben... How would you respond to the fact that in the Bible they're massively pro-immigration? They talk about the sojourners and how you should literally welcome them into your house. You know, you're not in favor of a left-wing approach and an, uh, a tolerant approach on immigration. So wouldn't that be you turning your back on Judeo-Christian culture? Wouldn't it be you turning your back on, you know, the philosophy laid out in the New Testament in Judeo-Christian culture of uh, pacifism when you're come out in favor of the Iraq war and the Afghanistan war and your pro-drone strikes and all this stuff. Isn't that like a clear way of turning your back on that philosophy? What about um, health care? Who would Jesus deny health care to? Isn't Judeo-Christian culture supposed to be, you know, hey, let's look out for everybody, a golden rule, treat everybody as you would like to be treated. Do you think Jesus would be in favor of a free market capitalist approach on health insurance? So, and I, I'm not sure Andrew Neal was going to go exactly down that path that I just laid out there, but I think the core of his point is true, and I'm laying out reasons why it's true. His argument is, well, you know, you say we're turning our back on Judeo-Christian culture. Do you think you embrace and embody everything about Judeo-Christian culture? Because it seems like you've turned your back on it yourself in many respects. And then Shapiro, when he does this throughout the entire interview, he deflects. And what was his deflection? Well, you just, you just said that, you know, basically you're for abortion. So now you're going to lecture me about Judeo-Christian culture? Oh, Jesus Christ. Hey, Ben, do yourself a favor. Actually read the Bible 
and in the Bible, I believe it's in Numbers, but in, it's in multiple parts of the Bible, they uh, are pro-abortion, literally. They say that if your wife cheats on you, she should drink bitter water, and this bitter water would make her miscarry, which is inducing an abortion. So if your wife cheats on you, the Bible says she should get an abortion. That's in the Bible. So he's just arguing from, you know, like the cultural movement on the right that embraced this idea of being against abortion without even going to the actual source and seeing what the Bible actually says on abortion, which again, once you do that, you go, oh shit, the Bible's pro-abortion. This is crazy. This flips on its head everything I thought about that issue. Okay, now, um, the most important point to make here is Ben Shapiro and many others on the right, they say over and over, like, me, bro, I'm just, I'm just all about this battle of ideas. And I just want to have the discussion with people. You know, let's, let's duke it out in the battle of ideas and may the best ideas win. Well, Ben, here's a perfect example of having an opportunity to have your battle of ideas. And then you run away from it and you look for a safe space because you're a snowflake. And you can't actually defend your ideas when you get solid pushback on them. Listen, if you watched that interview and you thought that there were gotcha questions in there, you've got to take the partisan blinders off, man. Because Ben Shapiro was literally being given a giant platform to respond. Everything Andrew Neal is putting to him, he can respond to. Dude, you have the floor. Go. You can say whatever you want to say to fight back against what you think are points that you don't like that he's making. That is the battle of ideas. That's exactly what the battle of ideas is. That's exactly what it's supposed to be. He's asking standard adversarial questions because that's how it works in the rest of the world. Only in the U.S. do they coddle your fucking ball sack and act like you're special. Okay? In the rest of the world, there's a tradition in U.K. media of, yeah, I'm going to ask you tough questions because I'm in the fucking media. And what's the point? What's the point of me talking to you and holding your hands and frolicking in the meadow and singing kumbaya to you? No, I'm going to ask you tough questions. Guess what you're supposed to do when you're a fucking journalist, when you're a reporter? Now, the even more important point is Andrew Neal is a massive, massive right-wing guy. So Ben Shapiro calls him a, a leftist. Andrew Neal, the best line in the whole thing is, Mr. Shapiro, if you only knew how ridiculous that comment was, you wouldn't have said it. Andrew Neal pushed for the wars in both Iraq and Afghanistan. He argued that climate change isn't real. He's a massive right-wing guy. But because he asked adversarial questions, Ben Shapiro turned into a snowflake and melted live on air. And it was triggered and ran out looking for his safe space. So the same thing that Ben Shapiro accuses the left of being, he actually embodies it. And you know who did a great segment on this? T.J. Kirk, the amazing atheist. He broke down, this is from a while ago, he broke down a Shapiro speech, and Shapiro was giving his, like, tips on how to, you know, destroy leftists in debate. But everything that he was giving was, like, snide debate tricks to, like, weasel your way through a debate and not give direct answers, not be honest and upfront and straightforward and actually confront ideas head on. It was all, like hey, here's a way you can get away with not actually giving any answer to it and projecting and, and personally attacking your opponent. So the same shit he accused the, he accused the left of doing, that's what he does, and he just did it right here, and it was fucking embarrassing to watch, man. That was really hard to watch. So um, notice how he, he said it at least twice. 
he alluded to the fact that I'm popular. Nobody even knows who you are. Who cares? How the fuck is that even relevant? How is that relevant? Again, that's something where if a lefty did it to a right-wing guy, he would fucking, he would have a meltdown and say, see, shows how bankrupt their ideas are. They can't even engage on the idea. They have to resort to personal attacks. That's a personal attack. You know, I'm popular. Nobody knows who you are. By the way, that's not even true. In the UK, Andrew Neal is very well known. But, oh God, he's so smug. So smug and so disingenuous. And he just obfuscates throughout the entire interview. Um, now let's go through some of the more specific um, points here. At the beginning, they talk about how Ben Shapiro's arguing there's a giant thought movement on the right, and on the left, there's nothing. And what Andrew Neal does is he says, well, listen, here are the detailed policy discussions that they're having on the left. Agree with it or disagree with it, you can't say they're not having the discussion, because we are on the left having this discussion. And he accurately brings up Green New Deal, $15 minimum wage, Medicare for all. Like, again, agree or disagree with those policies, that's irrelevant. We are having this important discussion on the left, and it is policy-focused. And Shapiro smugly acts like, other side, bad. My side, good. We're talking about the real ideas on my side. Now, in reality, what ideas are they talking about on the right? Deregulation, tax cuts for the rich. That's, this is the standard go-to you know, anti-immigrant rhetoric. Um, and what are the things that Shapiro brings up to say the right is having all the ideas and, and having all the substantive discussions. Uh, he said, what action we should take with our medical system? What? That's a discussion that's being had on the right? No, your answer is less government always and more free market. That's always your answer. That's it. That's your whole answer. Trump care, did you know that Trump care, that was the Republican uh, Obamacare replacement bill, it was polling at 12%. Because the whole idea is, hey, let's gut all the regulations on uh, the for-profit health insurance companies, and let's let them do whatever the fuck they want. Yeah, we know that's your idea. That's your idea on every issue. Leave it to the, uh, you know, the free market, and let them get away with whatever the fuck they want to get away with, and let's do less regulation. That's your whole approach. So when you say we're having a debate as to what action to take with the medical system, there's no debate. On the left, there's a debate. There's a debate between, you know, public option. Um, there's a debate between expanding Medicare, lowering the age to 55, uh, expanding Medicaid, doing Medicare for all, doing Medicare for all where it's uh, a single-payer system where it's public dollars, so tax money funding public institutions or it's public money funding private institutions. So there is a vibrant debate on the left. On the right, the answer is the same, and it's always been the same, and every uh, you know, bill has shown this. Now, back in the 90s, there was debate on the right on the issue of health care, and the right-wing position was Obamacare, an individual mandate system, where you mandate people by law, go buy private health insurance. Um, but now you've abandoned that position because Obama took the position, so now you pretend like it's socialist or Marxist or whatever bullshit, and you say, no, the answer is just get rid of the lines around the states and fucking free market. That's always the answer, even though it's not even an answer. And we had that system beforehand, and it objectively had the worst possible health outcomes and the most expensive prices. So that's, you're not saying anything. You're, oh, what debate are we having on the right? The battle of ideas? What to do with our medical system? Notice he didn't even say any policy. 
didn't say any policies. He just said what to do with our med- medical system. That's not an answer. Then he says, and we're debating uh, climate change. What? Whether or not it's a real problem and whether or not technology will save us. I got news for you, Ben. That conversation does not make you guys look intelligent. <laughs> Quite the opposite. When you have, you know, a meta-analysis done that shows 99.8, of all the studies on the issue of climate change say it's real and it's largely man-made, and you guys are still debating whether or not it's happening, that doesn't make you look good. That makes you look really, really, really shitty. And then the only thing he said where there is actually a discussion about this on the right is populism versus free markets, so basically populism versus outsourcing, um, but, or protectionism versus outsourcing to be more specific. But really, that discussion is only being had along the margins, and it was Trump's rhetoric that was more in favor of protectionism, even though his policies are leaning more towards a free market approach with some minor tariffs here and there that have been botched a zillion ways and have been terrible and have actually had a negative uh, net bad effect on the economy, negative effect on the economy. Um, but that is a discussion that's at least happening. Ben Shapiro and Tucker Carlson had that conversation, basically free market versus um, protectionism and, or populism. And that's the one area where he, he made sense. But outside of that, in every other area, the vibrant policy debate and the battle of ideas is happening on the left. Look at, look at on the right, the real lack of discussion on foreign policy, for example. On the left right now, you have Ro Khanna, you have Ilhan Omar, you have Rashida Tlaib, you have Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, you have Bernie Sanders arguing for a non-interventionist position. On the right, you have now even Trump, who is nominally anti-war on the campaign trail, is just laying down, letting Bolton do whatever the fuck he wants to do. Okay. um, Then, uh, you know, this part says a lot to me about Ben Shapiro because he's uh, posed a question about locking up women for abortion, and which, by the way, is a new level of extremism that we haven't seen before, the pro-life movement in the past, they always drew a line and said, no, no, we're not talking about locking up a woman ever for this. So they were against abortion, but they would never take that step where they want to punish, you know, a a mother as if it's, as if it's murder or something. Well, that's what these new bills popping up around the country are doing. And so Andrew Neal, again, not letting his own personal opinion get in the way at all, saying it doesn't matter what my views are, I'm playing the role of reporter or journalist, so I'm going to be adversarial. He says, well, listen, that, you know, that is extreme, and that is barbaric. You're going to lock a woman up for 30 years if she has an abortion after six weeks? By the way, you know when viability is and when the nervous system is developed in the fetus? About 20 weeks, 20 to 23 weeks. Six weeks is super early, super early. You know, lock them up, they have an abortion at seven weeks? That's crazy. That is barbaric. That is rolling back the clock, you know, uh, generations. If that, I don't even know if they locked people up back in the day for that. So he poses that, and what does Shapiro do? He immediately deflects. Now, somebody who's intellectually honest would do what? He would answer the question. He would say, listen, I'm anti-abortion, but here's why I disagree with that particular policy. Um, you know, there's an intellectual tradition of being anti-abortion, but not punishing the mother in such draconian ways. He could have said that. Or he could have even defended the policy if he wanted to. Hey, I think it's murder, so since it's murder, yes, that's how you treat murders. He could have answered the question, but he chose not to answer the question. He chose to 
deflect. He deflected, accused Andrew Neal of being a leftist and uh, supporting abortion, even though who knows what Andrew Neal's position on abortion is. Um, and his other positions are right wing. So if anything, I'm inclined to believe maybe his position is right wing, though I don't know. Uh, and then his only answer when he actually got around to finally answering a little bit, even if you could call it that, was in a side where he said, my answer is something called science. Oh, come on, man. If you're somebody who's a Ben Shapiro fan, you don't see how flippant and glib that is. You don't see how smug that is. You don't see how he's doing everything he can to not answer the question simply because he views it as a hostile question. Son, why not be intellectually honest and upfront? I don't, like, there's nothing, you can just be intellectually honest and upfront. Instead, you're doing everything but that. Listen, it's like, I brought this up before, but you know what this reminded me of? Because Andrew Neal asked a lot of incisive, hard-hitting questions. When I was on Fox News, I think it was the second time, the host actually hit me with a great question at one point. Because I was citing, earlier in the interview, I was citing polls and saying, hey, listen, Americans are with the so-called far left when it comes to Medicare for all, when it comes to free college, when it comes to a living wage. And I went down the, you know, the, the policy platform and said, Americans are with us on all this. The polls show it. And then later on in the interview, I was defending the position of abolishing ICE. And the host says, well, hold on now, Kyle. You were just talking about how the Americans people are with you according to the polls. Well, on this position of abolishing ICE, the American people are massively against you according to the polls. That's a really good point. That's a really good point. Now, if I'm Ben Shapiro, what do I do? I can dodge, I can obfuscate, I can turn into Neo from the Matrix and be like, don't answer the question. But no, what did I do? I, I was honest and upfront and gave a real answer. I said, you know what, you're right about that, but the Democrats have not made the case at all when it comes to abolishing ICE. If the American people knew that we have customs and border protection to already protect the border, and ICE is accused of doing literal slavery at private prisons, I think the American people would then support abolishing ICE. Because the left hasn't made the argument. If we make the argument, then maybe they'll agree. That's it. That's it. You give a real answer to a real question. What does Ben Shapiro do? Anything but that. Anything but that. But yeah, I think you're a leftist. Why aren't you just honest about what you are? Why aren't you just honest? Would you call late-term abortion barbaric? By the way, Andrew Neal had just finished saying, if you were somebody who was, what he was trying to say is, if you were somebody who is um, pro-abortion, he would be asking an adversarial question from an anti-abortion perspective. But Ben Shapiro brings that up as if it's a gotcha. Like, oh yeah, if it was somebody else in this chair, would you ask a tough question on late-term abortion? Yeah, he just said he would do exactly that. And I have no question in my mind he'd do that. Like, oh, oh, God, it was just the entitlement you see from Ben Shapiro. He reeks of entitlement throughout this entire interview. Um, and then he had nowhere to go when he was posed with an even harder-hitting question of, you called Obama's 2012 State of the Union fascist? Defend that. Why would you call it fascist? And Ben Shapiro's answer is effectively, no good answer on that front. Again, you have the floor, dude. You can make whatever argument you want. Fuck, I can make an argument for, for something along those lines. Uh, you know what a fascist move is? A fascist move is to have no official procedure in place, no due process, and Barack Obama gets to push a button and blow up innocent brown women and babies in Yemen without thinking twice about it, without any oversight whatsoever, without any approval from Congress. That seems pretty fascist to me. I can make an argument for certain things Obama uh, does being fascist, but Ben Shapiro fucking crumbled because he's being asked adversarial questions for the first goddamn time in his life. He, uh, Andrew Neal brought up, well, you said that Jews who support Obama are Jews in name only. 
whoa, what the fuck? Ben Shapiro, this is the guy who goes around accusing everybody else. You're an anti-Semite. You're an anti-Semite. You're an anti-Semite. You're an anti-Semite. And then he literally has quotes where he says stuff like, you know, there are a lot of bad Jews running around here pretending to be Jews. And there's a lot of Jews in name only. Anybody, any Jew who supports Obama is a Jew in name only. So, in other words, unless they agree with your exact fundamentalist interpretation of your religion, then they don't count and they're not part of your religion. Dude, that is exactly what the Muslim fundamentalists say. Oh, Shias, they don't count because they don't believe in the real Islam of Sunni Islam, of Wahhabi Islam, of fundamentalist Salafist Islam. So they don't count because they're Shia. He's doing the same shit on, on the side of Judaism. If you don't believe in my exact interpretation of it, then you don't believe in it at all. You can't even call yourself a Jew. Jesus Christ. Again, he can't defend it, so he melts down. Um, then he gets to the tweet, which to his credit, he has written an article saying this was one of the dumber things I said. He has a list of all the dumb things he said, but he still melts down. Like, dude, all you have to do is bring up, like you said, hey, uh, I wrote an article saying here's all the dumb stuff I said. This was on the list. His tweet where he says uh, Israelis like to build, Arabs like to bomb crap and live in sewage or something like that. Um, but see, the problem was, and this is when he really lost it, Andrew Neal called him out on his bullshit, and he said, wait a second, you just said what you meant was Hamas. In the next tweet, you bring up Palestinians, not Hamas. So you say, no, 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 it's not that all Arabs like to live in sewage. It's that Palestinians like to live in sewage. No, see, Ben, that is hilariously stupid. That is beyond stupid. And so now Andrew Neal is there to call you out when you try your dodge and you lie and you say, I just meant Hamas. Well, then why did you say Palestinian? And then he goes, oh, well, the, according to the polls, they support Hamas, so therefore they're Hamas enough, so I don't know, guilty enough, so yeah. He was exposed for having ugly and silly beliefs. That's what he has. And so he melted down. And again, the final question where he left, I just don't think he had any response to it at all, which is why he really said, that's enough, I'm leaving. The question was, um, you say we're turning our back on Judeo-Christian values. What are those values? And how are we turning our backs on them? Oftentimes, basic adversarial questions to these kinds of characters, and they'll melt. You know, we're making fun of Ben Shapiro. You think Rave Dubin would have done any better in that chair? No, Rave Dubin would have done worse sitting in that chair. A lot of these guys are charlatans, man. Under the slightest bit of scrutiny, they break down. As expected when you really don't believe in anything. So, um, again, final point. His whole thing is, me? I care about the battle of ideas, bro. I'm all about this exchange of ideas. And then you're presented with an opportunity to have that exchange. To talk with somebody who's asking you tough questions, which should be your fucking wheelhouse, right? That's what you act like, you know, how to debate and destroy liberals. Yeah. Like, I'm, my whole thing is I can take on anybody. And then you fucking melt it down under the slightest bit of scrutiny from a conservative. The emperor has no clothes. And I think now it's pretty obvious. Okay. Let's take a break. When we come back, 
Trump's incoherent statement on Iran. And um, the new defense secretary is absolutely terrifying. Don't go anywhere. We will be right
bitch. All right, we're back, everybody. We are back, you punk bitches. Okay. Did a little prop job with the mic. That's pretty funny. <laughs> I use a sheet of paper to prop up the mic. It looks pretty funny. Not a sheet of paper, like a fucking a big old stack, a big old stack of papers to prop up the mic. Anywho, all right, let's uh, let's continue. Let's go to President Trump and his totally incoherent foreign policy statements. Let's see, Trump incoherent on Iran. So President Trump made a totally incoherent statement in regards to the administration's escalation with Iran um, and also their attempt to collapse the Iranian economy. Take a look. You just ripped up a deal where those were the terms. The terms of the deal were Iran cannot make a nuclear weapon and the IAEA, the International Atomic Energy Agency, gets to go in there all the time and regulate and check and make sure they're not enriching past a certain point. And that certain point is the line for power for their power grid and research. So that was already the deal, son. The deal was they are not going to make a nuclear weapon and we lift sanctions. That's it. We give them back their own money. By the way, Trump on the campaign trail fear-mongered about this nonstop, nonstop. He would say all the time that, you know, why did Obama give billions of dollars to Iran? What he didn't tell you is that money that was given to Iran was Iranian money that we had taken from them. So we give them back their own money. We lift sanctions, by the way, slowly but surely, after it's proven that they're not creating a nuclear weapon and that they're regulated and the IAEA can go in there and make sure of it. And that was the deal. They don't create a nuke. We lift sanctions. We give them back their own money, and we're done. Now, the U.N. says, hey, they were following the deal to a T. In fact, even after we pulled out of the deal, they kept following the deal. Why? Because of Europe. Europe was saying, hey, we know America's acting all crazy and whatnot, but let us assure you that you don't have to worry because we're going to follow the deal, and we're not going to like let your economy collapse, basically. And um, what we've done is continually added more and more sanctions to the point where now a lot of basic medicine is not getting into Iran, and people are dying because they don't have access to basic medicine. And so... We sanction the economy. 
we try to force their oil exports to zero, which is what they just announced a few weeks ago. And now Trump goes up and he's like, what, me, us? Now, listen, bro, we're reasonable. Hey, I said to Iran, just give me a call. All we want is for you not to get a nuclear weapon. Do you have any idea how infuriating it must be if you're in Iran and you hear this comment coming from Trump? Because that was the fucking deal, dude. That was the deal. Now, let me tell you the reality. Here's what I think is actually going on. I don't think Donald Trump is controlling our foreign policy pretty much at all. I think it's Pompeo and I think it's John Bolton more than anybody. I think they are the ones who are really controlling our foreign policy. Like when you remember, it was probably, how long ago was it now? Three months, four months ago, something like that. We had Trump just announce one day on Twitter, we're getting out of Afghanistan. We're coming home. He did the same thing with Syria. Now, notice, we didn't get out of Afghanistan and we didn't get out of Syria. And I think what's happening is honestly one of the same things that happened that was laid out in the Mueller report where they said, Trump would tell his, like, minions, go fire Comey, and, or not, I'm sorry, not Comey, Mueller, and then they wouldn't do it. And Trump would just fucking forget about it and move to the next thing. He makes these proclamations, and then they, nothing happens. And this is one of those instances of, like, I don't think he knows anything about the Iran deal. He doesn't know the deal. He doesn't know the specifics. He doesn't know um, the chronology of events. And I think that... Bolton and Pompeo capitalize on Trump being a dipshit and having the attention span of a gnat, and they just do whatever they want. So when Trump says, we're getting out of Syria, we're getting out of Afghanistan, and then we don't do that, what do you think happened? You think Trump changed his mind behind closed doors? That's possible. But what I think is more likely is he's a dipshit and doesn't know anything. And Bolton's like, yeah, exactly, we're going to do that. And then they just don't do it. So, I mean... There's no other explanation for this. I mean, what is the other explanation? I mean, it's possible that Trump knows the details of everything with the Iran deal, and he's, he's like, lying. He's saying, well, you know, hey, all we want is for them not to get a nuke. And he knows that, well, that's what the old uh, deal was successfully doing. But I honestly think it's more likely. I think Occam's razor is he really is that dumb and he doesn't know anything and he's really ignorant on all this stuff and he just goes out there and speaks from his ass and the media cycle goes off of what Trump says relentlessly but the people really controlling it are like Bolton and Pompeo. I think that's true. Now, by the way, that doesn't exonerate Trump. That just makes Donald Trump a hell of a lot like George W. Bush because if you remember, the stories coming out of the Bush administration were W. Bush was making like none of the decisions. It was really Dick Cheney who was steering the ship. And now we have a situation where it looks like it's probably, I don't know how much Pence is involved, but definitely John Bolton and Mike Pompeo on foreign policy, maybe Pence too, like they're really steering the ship. So if anything, Trump is a hell of a lot like W. Bush where he's not smart enough or strong enough to really fight back against this and say like, no, we're not going to fucking do another regime change war. Um, But it just kind of happens. It just goes on and he doesn't stop it. And that's why there was a story the other day that came out which said that, uh, you know, Trump was publicly questioning Bolton's strategy on Venezuela. And he was saying, like, he's being dragged into another regime change war here and he doesn't want to be involved in that. And honestly, what that is, I think it's a similar dynamic. I think Bolton probably told Trump, like, it's going to be quick. It's going to be easy. Maduro's already about to fall. Gallardo's got popular support all over the place. Let's just, just back on a little bit of a push, and then the regime will fall, and then you'll get all the credit, and we're donezo. And then, you know, a month later, 
the coup fucking fails, the, the Maduro regime is still in control, and Trump's now he's going, oh, fuck, why did I agree to that? And he's trying to pawn off blame to Bolton so that he can turn around in the next election, and he can turn around when he's asked about it, and he can say, it was all, John Bolton was in control of that, and I disagree with that, and that was wrong. Now I'm in control, and we're not going to do that. I think Occam's razor is he's trying to pawn off blame so that he can walk away scot-free because, remember, he ran largely on non-intervention. He said, we're not going to do any more regime change wars. And now Bolton's trying to do a regime change war in Venezuela. So he's going to pawn off blame and take no responsibility for it because that's Trump 101. He's done it a million times before. He'll do it a million times more. He just blames everybody else. Like, yeah, fuck it. I'm going to blame everybody else, and I'm going to walk away and act like I did nothing wrong. I think that's what he's doing with Venezuela. He's expressing skepticism now, so we can turn around and say, it was Bolton. It's not me. It was Bolton. So um, either way, either way, he deserves blame because he's not strong enough to actually put an end to this shit, and he should be because he's the commander-in-chief. Dude, you want to act on it? Fucking fire Bolton. Fire Bolton. Fire Pompeo. Get rid of these fuckers, dude. If you actually believed in non-intervention, you would have not let any neocons in your administration in the first place. And at the very least, when you make a proclamation that's to get out of Syria or get out of Afghanistan, you wouldn't let them not follow through with it. So uh, I don't know exactly what the situation is, but this comment from Trump is incoherent. All we want is Iran not to get a nuke. So in other words, all you wanted was the Obama-Iran deal. That's what you wanted. You're either the biggest liar on the planet or you're totally dumb and ignorant. <laughs> I don't see any other possibilities. Okay, let's go to the next story, bitch. Story, bitch. Okay, more about Donald Trump's foreign policy and how disastrous it is. So this next story didn't blow up nearly enough considering how ludicrous it is. Trump picks ex-Boeing executive Shanahan as defense secretary. President Donald Trump plans to, pick, to nominate Patrick Shanahan, a former uh, Boeing executive, as his defense secretary, the White House said on Thursday, breaking with tradition by choosing someone who made a career at a top defense company as Pentagon chief. So this, I mean, this speaks for itself how insane it is. This dude who he's picking was under investigation for giving Boeing preferential treatment with his work in the government. So he's worked in the government and he's been giving Boeing special treatment, of course, of course, because it's his fucking former employer. There's the same shit that happened with Dick Cheney and Halliburton. 
Dick Cheney got an exit bonus of millions and millions of dollars. And then look at that. When he gets elected, he turns around and gives uh, Halliburton no-bid contracts where they get rich off of an illegal and offensive war. Um, He's also said, and I quote, I'm committed to modernizing U.S. military forces. You pick the Boeing guy, and he's committed to modernizing U.S. military forces. In other words, hey, let's upgrade the shit that the military has, and in the process of upgrading, I'm going to make my buddies over at Boeing massively rich. So not only did he pick the Boeing guy, the Boeing guy is promising up front to be corrupt. He's promising he's going to help out his buddies for personal reasons. To illustrate how extreme this is, this is like if the head of a cigarette company decided to lead the agency on cancer prevention. (laughs) That's how ridiculous this is. It's like we had the head of a tobacco company saying, I I am now the leader of the cancer, lung cancer prevention center. Everybody would be like, this is a farce. This is ridiculous. This is absurd. Why you've undermined yourself with this. Nobody's going to take you seriously. But now this is the case for fucking defense secretary, man. I'm at a loss for words. They've taken out, see, in the past, in most administrations, they were smart enough to have plausible deniability and put a middleman in there. So, you know, they put the guy who knows the guy, who has connections to the guy, who's at the defense contractor. Like, no, 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 he never worked for them, so he's not corrupt and he doesn't have a conflict of interest, but he knows the guy who knows the guy, who then they cut these sweetheart backroom deals. Trump is just like, I don't give a fuck. Yeah, the Boeing guy, yeah, I don't care, put him. Put him in this position. Like, these are people who legitimately go, and Trump did this, he said, Get, you know, a formal, uh, a former oil executive and put him in the EPA. So the exact people who they're supposed to be regulating are their best friends. And they're not going to regulate them. And they can let them get away with fucking anything. It's like letting Goldman Sachs and Wall Street criminals regulate Wall Street. They're going to let them get away with everything. And that's the point. See, they have... It's partly because of a philosophical commitment to deregulation, smaller government, and letting the private market do its thing. But it's also just because it's the good old boys club. And it's, you know, the network of elites who all pat each other on the back. I scratch your back, you scratch mine. And we're left with a situation where it's rampant runaway corruption and it's our government working for a very small group of elites, special interests. They're working for Wall Street. They're working for the military industrial complex. They're working for the oil companies. This is what's happening. 
So regular people, working people, are not factored into the equation. They'll take our tax money and go fucking bomb eight countries and start new wars all willy-nilly like it's nothing. And, you know, I feel like people need to wake up to step one of this. Because we're so used to the corruption. Again, this barely made a blip on the radar, man. He picked a defense contractor to be the fucking defense secretary. What do you think's going to happen? What do you think's going to happen? You think that guy's going to go in there and say, my number one goal is to make peace with people? No. He's going to go in there and say, he already said it. Let's, uh, let's modernize the military, which means upgrade all the stuff, which, by the way, does not need to be upgraded. Does not at all. We already spend more than the next nine biggest countries combined on our military. He's going he's gonna to try to rebuild the military when it's not needed, waste taxpayer money on that, and then look for more fucking wars to start. They're already talking about Russia and China in a hawkish way. In this article, they explain that. It's not just about Iraq anymore or Afghanistan. China and Russia are the geopolitical threats. Oh, boy, here we go. Cold War 2.0, and they're embracing it, and they're loving it. And all the Democrats are too fucking stupid and screaming about Russiagate to combat this and fight back against this. The way you need to be resisting on Venezuela is to say, don't get involved. The way you need to be resisting on Iran is to say, stop, no regime change war. But instead, they're going, oh, yeah? Why aren't you standing up to Putin? Why aren't you being more hawkish on Venezuela and more hawkish on Iran? Our political system is broken. It's broken, and nobody's standing up and saying the right things. Okay. All right, now let's go after the Democrats for a similar reason. We are going to make you cry with this one. Seriously, guys, this is bad. What you're about to hear now, this one is terrible. So if you ever wanted to read the perfect story that highlights why people despise lesser evilism voting, I have it for you right here. Lobbyists working to undermine Medicare for All host congressional staff at Luxury Resort. At a luxury resort just outside of the nation's capital last month, around four dozen senior congressional staffers decamped for a weekend of relaxation and discussion at Salamander Resort and Spa. It was an opportunity for Democrats and Republicans to come together and listen to live music from the Trailer Grass Orchestra, sip surprisingly impressive glasses of Virginia wine, and hear from healthcare lobbyists focused on defeating Medicare for all. So this event was hosted by a group called Center Forward and featured a lecture from industry lobbyists leading the charge on undermining progressive health care proposals. Center Forward was originally known as the Blue Dog Research Forum, which is a think tank affiliated with conservative Blue Dog Democrats. So this is the problem in our political system. The people who are nominally supposed to be on the correct side fighting for the people are having fucking getaways at luxury spas where they're whining and dining them for the very corrupt reason of saying, you're going to play ball, right? 
you're going to do the right thing, right? You're going to protect these insurance companies, right? You're not going to destroy them with radical legislation like Medicare for all, right? So somebody from Partnership for America's Healthcare Future spoke, and the whole point of that Orwellian group, because listen to the name, Partnership for America's Healthcare Future. The whole point of that group is to undermine Medicare for all. Uh, oh, my God. And chief, chiefs of staff for Majority Whip Jim Clyburn, Majority Leader Steny Hoyer, Representative Kurt Schrader, David Trone, and Dan Lipinski all went. This is how they stifle progress. This is how they stifle the correct answers, the policy solutions. It takes a giant astroturf effort to fight back popular movements. The grassroots support for Medicare for All is through the roof. Over 70% of the country wants Medicare for All. Even 51% of Republican voters want Medicare for All. Over 80% of the Democratic Party wants Medicare for All. I mean, it is crushing in the polls. And knowledge about it is going up because Bernie Sanders put it front and center. Now it's basically a litmus test for the 2020 candidates. And listen, man. How do you fight back against this? There's only one way to do it. You can't win on philosophical grounds. You can't win an actual battle of ideas and policies. So what do you do? You buy the people who are going to ultimately make the decision. You buy them. So you have these front groups, and their whole point is to protect the profits of the insurance companies, and they wine and dine these people. And guess what? These people are going to walk away. I don't even think they know how corrupt the thing is that they're doing. I think they walk away, these fucking staffers, and they go, oh, what do you mean? No, it's just a good, friendly dinner with, you know, colleagues and people who we know from the industry and lobbyists. And they're just, they're just warning. They're just being nice, and they're warning us about the downfalls of this legislation that's being proposed as a cure-all. This should be banned, bro. This should be banned. Listen, I spoke about it before. And actually, the person who originally came up with it, all credit to him, Richard Ojeda, swashbuckling left-wing populist from West Virginia. There should be body cameras on lobbyists and congressional staffers every time they meet with politicians. Or excuse me, there should be body cams on lobbyists every time they meet with congressional staffers or politicians. That should be a law. Okay, you want to meet with a lobbyist? Fine. Well, your boss is the American people. They're your boss. So they want to see what you're doing. Are you undermining your boss? Is that what you're doing? So if you're undermining your boss, we can't allow that. So every time you meet with a lobbyist, every time you meet with a CEO and executive, every time you meet with, you know, a staffer meets with a lobbyist, a representative of these companies that are getting rich off people's misery, you got to put a body camera on. That's the law. And then guess what? we'll all know what the fuck is going on. It's like with Mitt Romney when he was at that dinner with donors and he was talking about the 47% never going to get their act together. They're always going to be parasites and moochers. And he was basically saying, like, I think every Democrat in the country is a parasite and a moocher and they don't work hard and good upstanding Republicans end up supporting half the country. That was his argument. Well, when there was some transparency and we shined some light on what Mitt Romney really believes, everybody was like, oh, you're a piece of shit. Well, okay, so let's see those arguments. Let's see those conversations that they were having 
with representatives of the industry, and let's see what the arguments they made against Medicare for All. I guarantee you they're going to be absurd. I guarantee you they're going to be ridiculous. And it's going to be pretty clear how corrupt this whole charade is if it's on camera. So I think Bernie Sanders should come out today and be in favor of body cameras on lobbyists, man. You want to talk about getting all of the right people angry. Fox News would melt down. Some of your idiot um, opponents would melt down. Let them do it. Let them defend it. Let them defend corruption. Because if you come out against it, you're defending corruption. Oh, it takes away their privacy. Nobody said you have to meet with lobbyists. Nobody said that politicians have to meet with lobbyists or lobbyists have to meet with politicians. Nobody said that. You just not meet. Just don't meet. Just don't meet. That's fine. That'd be better if you didn't meet. If it disincentivizes meetings, great, wonderful. So um, that's one of the things that has to be done. And, of course, the other thing is clean elections. So you don't have private financing of elections. So you don't have these lobbyists with as much of a say. But right now, they run the fucking place, and that's crystal clear. And they're whining and dining and schmoozing congressional staffers at a luxury resort in order to try to build a case against Medicare for All and stonewall it. Okay. Next, beach. All right, you guys are going to love this next story. It's an update on the build the wall stuff. Oh, boy. So do you all remember the GoFundMe project to build the wall? Well, we have a pretty hilarious yet also very sad update for you. A GoFundMe page called We Build the Wall, this is in Splinter News, by the way, has managed to raise well over $22 million from hundreds of thousands of donors over the past five months, run by an anti-immigration triple amputee Iraq war veteran named Brian Colfage. Colfage. The GoFundMe page promises to build segments of President Donald Trump's wall on private land along the southern U.S. border for a fraction of what it cost the government. The page received nearly $13 million in just five days after it was launched late last year. One snag, though, is that to date there is no sign of any groundbreaking having occurred on the project despite promises by Colfage that it would start in late April. Now, some donors are beginning to grow concerned that perhaps they were duped. The Daily Beast's Will Summer reported on donor concerns on Friday. So, the campaign morphed from building the wall into a nonprofit called We Build the Wall, and they went from saying, hey, we're going to build a wall on the entire southern border, we're going to build Trump's full wall. They went from that to okay, we can only build the wall on private land along the border. So we don't have the right to do it on the federal land. It's not legal for us to build it on the federal land, and we acknowledge that, but what we'll do is we're going to build it on the private land on the southern border. Now, did they ever lay out a detailed plan as to how they're actually going to go about doing that, how they're going to because you would have to talk to every individual private landowner at the southern border. And you'd have to say, okay, we want to build it there, and you'd probably have to 
buy the right or the ability to do it. They're not just going to let you build on their property, even if they're pro the wall. They look at it and they go, I can maybe get some money out of this. They're going to try to get some money out of it. You're just going to build a wall on somebody's private land. You actually, that's deeply against the conservative position, which is property rights are awesome. But here they're saying, like, let's just confiscate private property and build the land there because we like it. So they didn't lay out a detailed plan as to how they were going to get the private land to then build the wall on it. But furthermore, the overwhelming majority of the land on the southern border is federal land. So in other words, even if they built it on all the private land that they could, in so many areas you still wouldn't have a wall. Um, now, here's the nail in the coffin for this story, which is fairly devastating. The dude who raised the money, he was what the Daily Beast calls a, quote, prolific operator of hoax pages on Facebook. And he raised money in the past that he said was to help veterans programs in hospitals. And he allegedly never actually went to those hospitals and gave them the funds. So he used that as a facade, used that to basically hook people in to then give him money, and he didn't use it for what he said he was going to use it for. And now the donors are turning on him. Because apparently up until, like, April, they were giving people updates about it. And then now, like, in April, they just stopped. And by the way, there were some high-profile people who were, you know, brought into this project, including Steve Bannon is one, and um, Chris Kobach. I think he's from Kansas, is he from? Massively anti-immigrant politician from Kansas. So... I think from Kansas. I could be wrong. So they stopped giving updates when they said, oh, we're going to break ground in April. Well, bitch, it's May. It's mid-May. Not only have they not broken ground, they stopped giving updates. Now, there's one report, although to be fair, I I have no idea if it's true, and I actually think it's probably not because the source is questionable. But some some are saying that they literally bought a yacht with the money. (laughs) Now, again, I don't know if that's true because the source is questionable on that one. But, 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 what we know for sure is they said they were going to break ground in April. They didn't break ground in April. They don't have a specific plan. It's now mid-May, and they're nowhere to be found. And whenever they're asked about it, they basically say something along the lines of, we can't tell you it's top secret because we have, like, evil liberal groups like the ACLU coming after us, so we have to keep it under wraps. But you just hang in there, and eventually you'll be really happy. I warned you guys about this, man. I said it. And believe it or not, people disagreed with me. I got, you know, comments and tweets, and people were like, no, you don't know what you're talking about. I don't know what I'm talking about. You think it would be perfectly legal for them to crowdfund money and then build the wall on the southern border? You don't think that immediately runs into legal obstacles? No, no, no. You don't know what you're talking about. It's not that hard to determine what I just determined. That's not that hard at all. That's pretty obvious for anybody who's paying attention and doesn't have their head up their ass and isn't mired with the fucking partisan blinders that make them think the the right is always so pure and angelic and good. So, yeah, there you have it. I think that a lot of the people on the right who donated this, they looked at the fact that it was a triple amputee Iraq War veteran, and they thought, well, that's, that's it, that obviously the guy's going to do the right thing. He's a triple amputee Iraq War veteran. What do you mean? 
Oh, it looks like it didn't work out too well now, did it? Okay, bitch. Okay, bitch. Now we're going to go to Dave Rubin, or as we call him, Rave Dubin, bitch. So Rave Dubin was asked a pretty good question uh, by a very perceptive young lad. I believe his name is Evan. And um, yours truly came up. Let's take a look at how Rave Dubin responds. Dude, who are you fooling at this point, Dave? Who are you fooling at this point? Listen, man, the point is rather obvious. The point is, when was the last time you had a conversation with a lefty and spoke about left ideas? Please, send me the video. When was the last time Rave Dubin debated Medicare for All? When did he debate free college with a lefty? When did he debate a living wage with a lefty? When did he debate ending the wars with a lefty or a new New Deal or a Green New Deal or the utility of unions or discuss worker-owned co-ops? The thing is, you... It's false advertising, Dave. So you act like, me, bro? I'm all about free speech and the battle of ideas. And then your show is nothing but a safe space for conservative thought. Now, 
listen, is there something wrong in principle with being a safe space for conservative thought? No, there's not. But you have to be honest about it, and you're not honest about it. Drop the whole, like, I'm all about free speech and the battle of ideas, and I love just discussing these ideas, bro. You don't get to say that if you don't actually discuss the ideas that disagree with your narrative, and you don't discuss those ideas. The lefties who you have on, and I'm being kind and conceding that, yeah, oh, yeah, they're lefties, sure. The topic is, like Evan pointed out there, you, you talk to them about how shitty the left is. You have on lefties who shit on the left. Wow, how bold and how brave and how strong of you to directly take on left-wing ideas in this battle of ideas. You literally do not ever take on left-wing ideas in the battle of ideas. And listen, it's hard to not fucking conclude from this that maybe you wouldn't know how to respond if somebody actually made the case on the show directly to your face. It's hard to not come to that conclusion, man. Fine, you know what? Don't have on any of the people that he listed. Fine. Invite, you know, Professor Richard Wolfock. He's a, a, a fucking brilliant guy on economics, and he's a lefty, so you want to have that discussion? Like, I really hate this notion of, like, we're just the brave truth-tellers, and, uh, you know, we host outsider opinions here. Does it cut both ways? Did you have, I don't know, somebody who represents, like, Malcolm X philosophy of black identitarianism? If you really want to have, ed- you know, edgy, fringe ideas, why not have you know, a new Black Panther who can actually make the case in a strong, coherent way. And I don't, I don't even agree with them, but f- fucking have them if you're going to be the edgy outsider truth teller guys and we allow all ideas here, bro. All right, why not have a, a flat-out Marxist come make the case? Why not? Why not? Why wouldn't you do that? Because, again, it's not it, – it's marketing. It's branding. The marketing is I'm all about the, the battle of ideas. I'm all about free speech. And then ultimately it just becomes a safe space for conservative thought. And then the perception becomes, oh, well, these are the edgy outsiders, the ones who always happen to agree with conservative thought. And that's just not true. (laughs) That's not even close to true. In fact, the bulk of systemic resistance is against left-wing thought. Why? Because it actually threatens power. You don't think it threatens the powerful when you talk about a living wage, when you talk about a right to a union, which would guarantee workers get paid more. That's exactly the opposite of what management wants, what the elite wants. I mean, that would actually hurt the bottom line of the top 1%. So they will resist that come hell or high water. When you talk about Medicare for all, you want to talk about an edgy idea? How about it would totally destroy the way our healthcare system is currently uh, set up and it would Get rid of that for-profit, unnecessary, rapacious, mafia-like middleman that has literal death panels and determines who lives or dies. Because that's what the middleman does. That's what for-profit health insurance companies do. Hey, uh, you, you know, I'm not going to cover uh, your cancer treatment, or I am going to cover it, but you have a $7,500 deductible first. You've got to pay that out of pocket. Well, I can't afford that. Oh, well, that's too bad for you, no, isn't it? These are the real subversive ideas that question power, and you don't have that debate with anybody on the left. You don't have that discussion with anybody on the left. Again, fine, you don't want to talk to any of the people he laid out, which, by the way, LOL, that's pretty fucking hilarious. He gave you a list of, like, fucking four people. Like, no, I'm not against talking to them in principle. It's just that uh, 
what did he say? They're dishonest players? Or I don't know if he was talking specifically about Cedar or talking about all of us there, but this is the oldest trick in the book, man. You know, anybody who disagrees with me, who has rigorously criticized me, you're just a dishonest player. You're just a liar. You're just a smear merchant. Well, so much for, you know, being a big-time believer in free speech. (laughs) I believe in free speech unless I don't like the nature of the criticism against me, in which case then I no longer believe in free speech. It's like when I threatened to sue people who wrote an article who referred to me as conservative. I'm not making that up. Mr. Free Speech himself did that. Somebody wrote an article basically saying, like, Dave Rubin's a conservative. And he, he like, posted on Twitter the, the textbook definition of fucking libel or slander or some shit. And he was like, you know, you better take it down. What happened to free speech, big guy? What happened to free speech? It's not libelous or slanderous to say, I think you're conservative based on your publicly, you know, espoused political positions. Now, you could say, I just agree with that. I'm a classical liberal or whatever the fuck you say these days. But they're allowed to have the opinion that you're conservative. Even if you say that it's factually wrong, they're allowed to say it. that's not fucking libel or slander or any nonsense like that. I mean, come on, man. It's, it's a joke. He's a joke at this point. And again, you don't want to talk to any of the people named fine. Invite on David Dole, the Rational National. Invite back on Jimmy Dore. You had him on a long, long time ago, back before you totally lost your mind. Um, invite on uh, Humanist Report, Mike Figueredo. Do that. But the reality of the situation is, and make no mistake about it, the reason why he won't have a conversation with Sam Cedar is because Sam Cedar has made Dave Rubin a punching bag on his show. Not illegitimately. In fact, the, the heart of the criticism always comes back to substance. Comes back to, hey, here's a silly thing you said, and I'm going to correct it because what you said is really silly. That's always the heart of it. Dave's characterization of that is they're dishonest, they're smear merchants. Oh, please. <laughs> oh, please. And listen, when people you know, maybe end up calling you names, when they, for example, watch that clip of you and Joe Rogan going back and forth and you're arguing against building codes, have you considered maybe it's deserved? (laughs) I mean, I've called myself sometimes on on air like, I'm a jackass or I'm an idiot. I was wrong about that. I fucked that up. You want to know why? Because I'm intellectually honest. You have to ask yourself why you run for a safe space and you melt like a snowflake at the first sign of disagreement. So just listen, all I'm saying is come as advertised, bro. You, you can't say you're the, I'm all about the exchange of ideas and freedom of speech. And you have on nobody from the left to debate actual left ideas. Medicare for all, free college, living wage, ending the wars, new, new deal, green, new deal. None of that stuff. None of it. Unions, none of it. Worker owned co-ops. It's hilarious. I mean, it really is hilarious. But people, but see, that's the thing, Dave. You don't even realize it, but your grift is imploding on you because everybody's seen through it. You don't, you have any idea how many times I've seen comments like, I used to be a fan of Dave Rubin, and then, you know, fast forward a couple months, and I'm like, what the fuck? Is, what, what, is, what is he doing? What is he saying? I mean, this is just ridiculous. And I think it speaks for itself pretty clearly when Evan laid out a list of, who did he say? He said, um, ContraPoints. Who else did he say? He said, uh, Sam Cedar, ContraPoints, Kyle Klinsky, David Pakman. We know why he doesn't want to talk to David Pakman, right? For those of you who haven't seen it, go see it. There's an old discussion of, from, I don't know, a year and a half ago maybe, Dave Rubin and, and uh, David Pakman. And Dave Rubin asked him basic policy questions. Hey, what's your take on health care? You've said you're for Medicare for all, but then you say, like, you said other things that kind of, 
show you're not. So what, what's your position? And Dave's response is, pretty sure he has no idea what Medicare for All is and pretty sure he has no idea even what Obamacare is because he's spoken out against Obamacare. And then when he goes on to lay out his idea of a perfect uh, policy proposal on health care, it's Obamacare. So that's why he doesn't want to talk to those guys. It's got nothing to do with, oh, my God, they're all smear merchants or they're all liars or they're dishonest actors. Oh, please. Oh, please. Literally, all we talk about on this show is policy. Sure, I fuck around and have fun with it, too, of course. But we are fucking loaded with policy up to our eyeballs on this show. Okay? So you can't say, oh, they're dishonest. They're not talking about, like, serious issues. Oh, please. So I think it says a lot when he laid out, like, a bunch of different lefties and Dave's like... Come on, bro. Come on, bro. I'm all about this battle of ideas, which is why I invite on lefties to bash the left nonstop. Like, the tap dance is getting old and silly. We get it. We get it. Oh, I have had on lefties. Look at this ridiculous breakdown of the policy positions of all the people who come on my shows. You never talk about the actual left issues, though. And to the extent you do, you just bash them all day long. My social justice warriors are so bad and dumb. Wow, congratulations. What a bold claim, Dave. Wow, a fucking emotionally unstable college kid with pink hair turns out is not the brightest in the room. Whoa, wow, incredible thought, man. Well done. That's not the most obvious fucking thing ever that we could have gotten out of the way in about two seconds. But it all comes back to that. It all comes back to, you know, left bad, social justice warriors bad. Let me not engage with any lefties on actual left policy issues and still pretend like I'm the battle of ideas guy and the free speech guy. Save it, dude. Save it. And again, even if you don't want to talk to any of the people he listed there, I can give you a list of fucking 20 people, you know, people I agree with on a lot of things or maybe even disagree with on a lot of things. You know, I I told you David Dole, uh, Michael Figueredo, Benjamin Dixon, Michael Brooks, whatever. The list goes on and on. Nico House, the list goes on and on and on. And none of them have been on the show to discuss actual left ideas. Ask yourself what that says about a man named Rave Dubin. Okay. Let's go to CNN's new attack on Bernie Sanders. So CNN uh, did a segment on Bernie, and they titled it, How Bernie Sanders Has Been Consistent for Over 40 Years. But then in the segment, they proceeded to attack him in multiple different ways. Hilarious. Even when they're trying to seemingly give him credit with the title, That was just bait to get you into the segment so that they can then do what they perceive as attacking him. Take a look. He's certainly one of the top contenders for the Democratic presidential nomination, and many of Bernie Sanders' positions set him apart from the pack. But have they changed in the more than four decades Sanders has been involved in politics? CNN's Ryan Noble has been investigating for us. Ryan Sanders is registered as an independent, but caucuses with the Democrats in the Senate, and he calls himself a Democratic Socialist. Yeah, that's right, Wolf, and our KFAL team has exhaustively poured over hundreds of press releases, 
uh, different types of uh, background from uh, Bernie Sanders' past. And what we discovered is that the Bernie Sanders of the 1970s isn't all that different than the Bernie Sanders of today. Thank you, Madison. Bernie Sanders, one of the leading contenders for the Democratic nomination. There is nothing that we cannot accomplish. Preaching a message very similar to his 2016 run. People cannot afford the medicine they need. They cannot afford the medicine they need. Start paying their fair share of taxes. Start paying their fair share of taxes. One, that's not all that different from his political posture more than four decades ago as an unknown activist in Vermont. My name is Bernard Sanders. We're going to be looking at poverty in Vermont. Sanders often fights for low-income Americans, but he recently drew some criticism after his tax returns revealed his own income topped a million dollars in 2016 and 2017, largely due to two best-selling books after his last presidential campaign. So if anyone thinks that I should apologize for writing a best-selling book, I'm sorry, I'm not going to do it. But according to a CNN K-File investigation, in his early years, Bernie Sanders felt differently. Nobody should earn more than a million dollars, Sanders said in a 1974 article. That's the equivalent of a little more than $5 million today. And anything above $1 million, he believed, should be 100% taxed. He said it should be illegal to amass more wealth than a human family could use in a lifetime, and that members of the Senate should earn the median income of their constituents. That philosophy on wealth disparity became the bedrock of Sanders' platform, railing against the ties linking economic and political power. The economic misery, totally unnecessary in my view, that is grinding down the lives of tens of thousands of Vermonters. Sanders' foray into politics was somewhat by accident. A pacifist, he avoided the Vietnam draft by applying for conscientious objector status. By the time his application was denied, he was too old to be drafted. He was working as a carpenter in Vermont when he attended a meeting of a small left-wing group called the Liberty Union Party. He emerged as their candidate for U.S. Senate. We're in this meeting, and we've done all our business, and here we don't have anybody for the U.S. Senate slot. I turn over, and I see this bushy-haired guy in his ruffled clothes, and I'm saying, hey, you, you want to run for this seat? We need some fresh meat to sacrifice on the altar of the ballot. I don't think he had any illusions about winning, and I think he certainly surprised me, and I think perhaps surprised himself by volunteering to run for the Senate. And that was the beginning of his electoral uh, career. That campaign included some of Sanders' most extreme ideas, including legalizing all drugs, including heroin, and even legalizing hitchhiking, which he often did to get from event to event. Doris Lake campaigned with Sanders in 1972 as the Liberty Union's congressional candidate. Bernie was the one who told me, well, this, this is what candidates do. They go in and they shake hands and say, say to the workers, uh, vote for me and I'll take care of you. Sanders lost that election, earning just 2% of the vote, but he continued to sharpen his rhetoric against big corporations and the wealthy. In 1976, he ran for governor of Vermont. And I think it's clear to anyone who follows the debate that both of these people are concerned about the interests of the two or three percent of the population who owns the state of Vermont and not the other 97 percent of the people who work for a living. Bernie has not, for better or worse, has not deviated. And the 
billions and billions of dollars, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of billions of dollars, hundreds of billions of dollars. The joke is now we turn on the telly, he starts, and we finish the speech. He lost that race and every other he entered in the 1970s. Sanders was socially progressive. The Liberty Union's 1971 platform called for abolishing all laws related to abortion, birth control, and homosexual relationships. A 1972 Liberty Union magazine edited by Sanders suggested lowering the voting age to 14, ending requirements to go to school, and punishing businesses who left the state without compensating workers. The concept of democracy is, is not the for this country or for the state. His first major victory finally came in 1981, when he was elected mayor of Burlington by just 10 votes. The policies he's held on to since then, like universal health care, free public college, and raising taxes on the wealthy, are largely what appeal to his supporters today. I have run for office in the state of Vermont on many occasions. Sometimes I've lost, more often I've won. What all of that showed is that those ideas were not radical ideas. They were common sense American ideas that the American people supported. And while much of what Sanders advocated for early on in his career remains the same today, there are some of the more radical positions that he has changed on. A campaign spokesperson confirming for us tonight that uh, Sanders now believes that compulsory education is a good idea. He no longer believes that we should lower the voting age to 14. He no longer supports nationalizing many private industries. And he no longer supports legalizing all drugs, including heroin. Well, good report. Uh, Ryan Nobles, uh, thanks so much. I don't know whether I should be annoyed or I should be thanking them. Because, make no mistake about it, a lot of that stuff that they laid out there is a snide jab at Bernie. It's an attempt to take him down a couple pegs and act like, look at some of the crazy things he believes in. But even though I don't agree with all the stuff that young Bernie said, it's pretty fucking badass, son. <laughs> so let's go through it. First of all, they bring up the criticism that wasn't a criticism. They made it up. Of like, he made a million dollars from selling his book. How dare he make money when he says he wants to tax the rich? Please, man. Nobody on the left actually made the criticism of like, oh, how could he make over a million dollars? You guys made the criticism. You made the criticism. Now, we all know he would raise his own taxes. See, it's that old Russell Brand quote, which is brilliant, of when I was poor and I complained about the, the wealth inequality, they called me bitter. Now that I'm rich and I complain about the wealth inequality, they call me a hypocrite. So Bernie can't win. He can't win. He, his policy position has not changed in terms of he thinks we should tax the rich more, but they still try to do a gotcha on him because he made money from selling a book. But nobody on the left was actually mad about that. None of us were mad about that. None of us. I haven't seen a single person on the left who was like, oh, how could he? Now he lost my vote. So you guys made it up and you're running with it because in your mind you have a caricature, a stereotype of what you think a lefty would get mad about. And you're projecting and you're like, Oh, there's, he's getting criticism. He's getting criticism from the left because he made a million dollars. But he's not. You made it up. You're the ones criticizing him. Um, now let's go through some of his old policy positions. He, back in the day, he said, this was a long time ago, nobody sure earned more than $1 million. So in other words, all income over $1 million should be taxed at 100%. Now, when you adjust for inflation, the amount of money he was talking about in today's dollars is about $5 million. Now, am I in favor of that policy? I'm not. No. But is that a crazy policy? 
Like, I always find it hilarious when people try to pearl clutch and act like certain ideas are crazy when they're obviously not crazy. Do you have any idea how much money $5 million a year is? Do you have any idea how much money that really is? I don't think people can really wrap their minds around how much money that is. $5 million a year. So even though I don't support a 100% tax on making $5 million a year or, or more, every, every dollar over $5 million, that's what he was proposing, um, I don't think it's a crazy idea at all. I don't think it's crazy at all. I think that um, you would still be phenomenally, amazingly, incredibly wealthy in a way where you probably couldn't spend all that money in a lifetime if you're making $5 million a year. The idea that we're supposed to, let's say somebody earns, whatever that means, $15 million in our current fucked up system, $15 million a year, and they're walking away netting $5 million, and I'm, we're supposed to be like, feel bad for them? Like pity the poor person who just made $5 million? No. The way we think about this stuff is all wrong. Because you look at the amount of money that they made in our current system, and you think that that's an actual reflection organically of like who they are as a person and their worth as a human being. No, it just reflects their market value. That's it. Market value does not equal human value. That same system that gave one guy $15 million a year is also the same system that decided, you know, a single mother in Cleveland who works two full-time jobs shouldn't make enough money to put food on the table and pay the light bill. So perhaps the system is fucked up in terms of the distribution. Perhaps when we have millions and millions and millions of working poor people, people who work full-time and still don't make enough money to survive, Perhaps the entire system needs to be retooled and switched up, and we need a living wage as a matter of law, and we need right to a union as a matter of law, and we need uh, you know, a progressive taxation system like every other developed system in the world has. By the way, I'm not sure what the exact rates are in Scandinavia, but you're in, in the ballpark if you're saying a 100% tax over $5 million. Again, I don't know the exact rates. But that's not too far off from what it is in the Scandinavian uh, countries. So take that for what it's worth. Again, I don't support the policy, but I don't think it's crazy. And I don't think people listening to it are going to be as outraged as CNN is pretending to be here. Um, Then he said members of the Senate should earn the median wage of the places they're representing. That's a pretty badass proposal. Again, I don't think I support that, particularly because I think when you get rid of money in politics, like you get rid of the corrupting influence and corrosive influence of private money, that I actually am totally fine with paying our senators and congresspeople well, pay them very well, and ban the private money and make them feel like if you take the private money, you really are selling out and turning your back on your constituents who are paying you really well for what you're doing. So I'm in favor of paying them really well, but also getting rid of all the private financing of elections and and basically banning the revolving door so afterwards they can't, go and get rich in the private sector by selling out. So if they can't go out and get rich in the private sector, make it so they get paid well when they're in government, basically. Okay, I digress. But that's still a badass idea. And then legalizing all drugs, super badass. Um, Legalizing hitchhiking, I didn't even know that was illegal. A 14-year-old voting age, I don't agree with that one, but I believe in 16-year-old voting age. I think it should be 16 and up. Draw a line at 16 for everything. So 16 and up, that's when you're considered an adult in the eyes of the law in my ideal system. Um, And non-compulsory school, I never thought of that before. Uh, I don't think I support that. That's a little weird, a little too, like, libertarian-ish, if you ask me. But um, I don't 
I'm not outraged by Bernie having supported that at one time. So I think that the attack actually falls flat because it makes him just look like a super badass. I mean, if you're talking in the 1970s, if you're talking about legalizing all drugs, that's so badass. <laughs> that's so ahead of the times. That's so ahead of the times. So um, I hope this increases his support. And listen, truth be told, as of right this second, he needs it because um, Joe Biden now, admittedly, all these polls were skewed and they oversample older voters, but, but he's leading now in the last four or five, six polls, and it's by quite a bit. So even if you factor in for the fact that the polls were skewed, I think Bernie is still down. So I hope mainstream media attacks Bernie and it helps him because some of these attacks, in my opinion, I think they will help him. Next, so apparently the far right needs a safe space from scary Ilhan Omar. Um, Fox News did a panel where they melted like the snowflakes they are, and uh, they basically smeared her relentlessly. But this isn't just funny, it's also really disturbing. Let's watch and then I'll explain why. security information with our enemies. Listen, I am, I'm always hesitant to play the bigot card because I think you should have evidence for it. I think it should really make sense when you invoke it. But what the fuck else you want to call this? What is that? Why, why would you assume for a split second she's going to share sensitive information with our enemies? And that was, they alluded to that sentiment repeatedly. She's a, quote, national security threat. What? She's a national security What the fuck are you talking about? 
because of her anti-Semitism. Utter nonsense. She criticized the Israeli lobby and money in politics and how the right-wing Israel lobby buys politicians to do their bidding, which they do. She also criticized the Saudi lobby. Is she Islamophobic? And then they said she's a threat to all Americans and she's anti-American as well. Oh, please, anti-American. Her policies would save American lives. Medicare for all, for example. Uh, Her policy of let's not do illegal offensive wars would save American lives, not just because it protects Americans at home from blowback, which it does, but it would also save lives of U.S. soldiers who are being sent willy-nilly like they're pawns in a chess game to go die overseas in conflicts we shouldn't even be in. So what the fuck are you talking about? She's going to, you know why they're doing this, right? I'll tell you why they're doing this. Because she criticized Israel. Recently, Israel did another fucking bomb fest in Gaza. And as usual, when they do these bomb fests, they don't give up. Fuck even a little bit about, are we killing civilians? Are we bombing women and children? Are we hitting civilian centers? They don't care. They don't care. That's why the last time in 2014, when they cut the grass, as they call it, uh, they killed 80% civilians, according to the UN, including 500 children. So Ilhan Omar says, oh, shit, please don't kill children, and they lose it. She tweeted about it and said, like, Israel needs to stop killing civilians, and they act like that's egregious. And then they go on to say shit like she's a national security threat for being on a foreign affairs committee, and she's going to share sensitive information with our enemies. What the fuck? Let's face it. Let's face it. These dudes are rank bigots, and it's because she's a black Muslim woman they think, is she going to share Sensitive information with, like, Hamas or a repressive foreign government? <gasps> yeah, it was so scary. I mean, God forbid politicians, like, you know, materially support repressive dictatorship governments. Oh, that's right. The guy you guys love, uh, Donald Trump, just gave over a $100 billion weapons deal to the worst, most terroristic regime on the planet, Saudi Arabia. As they treat women like shit, they behead people in the public square for sorcery and witchcraft, and they're doing a genocide in Yemen. And Donald Trump gave them weapons. Gave them weapons as they kill babies and starve babies in Yemen. And you say Ilhan Omar is a threat. And Ilhan Omar might be helping our enemies. These guys are bigots. That's what they are. I mean, I, again, what, what other explanation is there? Uh, She might give fucking help to our enemies. It's because she's a black Muslim woman. That's why they're saying this. She looks different. It's foreign. She looks foreign. And she's not fawning over Israel relentlessly, so obviously she's with the enemy. I can't believe anybody watches this and thinks it's even remotely logical. These are the guys who love to pretend like they're logical. Like, please, well, facts don't care about your feelings. You're right, they don't. And this is an instance where you couldn't be more wrong in every fucking little thing you said. Now, finally, I'll end with this. If you think it's not the case that her identity is driving them nuts, they're doing the same thing to Rashida Tlaib today. So let me read you a quote from Rashida Tlaib and then how they're characterizing it. Here's what Rashida Tlaib said, and this led to a firestorm. She said, there's always always kind of a common... uh, There's always kind of a calming feeling, I tell folks, When I think of the Holocaust and the tragedy of the Holocaust and the fact that it was my ancestors, Palestinians, who lost their land and some lost their lives, their livelihood, their human dignity, their existence in many ways, 
have been wiped out and some people's passports. And just all of it was in the name of trying to create a safe haven for Jews post the Holocaust, post the tragedy and the horrific persecution of Jews across the world at that time. And I love the fact that it was my ancestors that provided that right in many ways, but they did it in a way that took their human dignity away and it was forced on them. So it, I mean, I, I don't even need to break that down. It's crystal clear what she's saying. She says, hey, when the Holocaust happened, it was Palestinians, my ancestors, who provided Jewish people a safe haven. And that gives me a calming feeling, knowing that they're safe from the Nazis, basically. And now there's a place where they can go where they don't have to worry about something like what happened in Nazi Germany. And you know what they did? They took the first thing of what she said, got rid of the second half, and smeared her as if she's in favor of the Holocaust. They took this. There's always a kind of calming feeling I tell folks when I think of the Holocaust. That's it. They stop there. The rest of the quote goes on to explain how the Holocaust was terrible and it was a tragedy and it was evil and it was my ancestors who created that safe haven, albeit in a way that hurt them, but at least there was a safe haven for Jews and that gives me a calming feeling. They totally destroyed the context, totally destroyed all of it, and they're pretending like she's in favor of the fucking Holocaust. You guys are lying smear merchants and you're, it's fucking dangerous what you're doing. It's dangerous because now the two first female Muslim congresspeople are on the receiving end of countless death threats, and you're making it seem like they're giving fucking information to our enemies, and they're pro the Holocaust. How the fuck do you guys sleep at night? By the way, you know who made the Rashida Tlaib story big? Liz Cheney. Washington Examiner wrote the smear piece, and Liz Cheney fucking tweeted it. God damn it, man. These guys are fucking liars. Now Trump is tweeting about Rashida Tlaib and acting like she's pro-Holocaust. Do you have no shame, or are you all that stupid? Which is it? Are you all the biggest fucking idiots on the planet, or do you have zero shame and you don't care and you'll smear them even though it's dangerous and wrong and terrible? All right. Okay. We're done here, but uh, do not underestimate how low these bigots will go. Okay. So Bloomberg is reporting on a new Trump administration trick. What they want to do is redefine the poverty line so that they can brag about lifting people out of poverty when they didn't. This is gross. The Trump administration uh, may alter the way it determines the national poverty threshold, putting American lives on the margins at risk of losing access to welfare programs. The possible move would involve changing how inflation is calculated in the official poverty measure. The White House Office of Management and Budget said in a regulatory filing on Monday, the formula has been used for decades to determine whether people qualify for certain federal programs and benefits. The measure, first set in the 1960s, is calculated at three times the cost of a minimum food diet and adjusted every year as prices prices rise. In 2018, a family of four making no more than $25,900 was considered impoverished. 
The figure determines eligibility for a wide swath of federal, state, and nonprofit programs, including Medicaid and food stamps. By changing the index the government uses to calculate how much the cost of living rises or falls, the poverty level could rise at a slower rate. One proposal the Office of Management and Budget suggested in the filing is to shift to the so-called chain CPI, which regularly shows a slower pace of price gains than traditional measures. Chain CPI shows slower inflation growth because it assumes consumers will substitute less expensive items when prices for specific individual goods rise or increase significantly. Because of this, changes to the poverty thresholds, including how they are updated for inflation over time, may affect eligibility for programs that use the poverty guidelines, OMB said in a notice published to the Federal Register. So this is the same thing that we fought with George W. Bush and Barack Obama when they wanted to move, I think it was uh, Social Security and Medicaid, over to the chain CPI. Um, They wanted to make it so the cost of living increases became less and less, and so you save money for the program by reducing the amount that's increased per year. Uh, Now, this is an attempt, in the case of the Trump administration, to just say, so that he can do a State of the Union and he can brag, under my administration, we've lifted three million people out of poverty, yes! Oh, yes! Now, again, what they wouldn't tell you is they're changing the way that they calculate poverty and changing the poverty line so that, no, you wouldn't be lifting more people out of poverty. You're just lowering the line that's considered poverty. This is fucking sneaky-ass bullshit accounting tricks, and this is all they had. This is all they can rely on when they're trying to make the case that their economy is wonderful. This is why, listen, all they talk about is, you know, oh, the unemployment rate is low and the stock market is up. You want to dig into those numbers even a little bit? Are you even a little curious? Because when you dig into those numbers, you find out very quickly, what's it called, the U6 unemployment rate, I believe it's called? Now, that includes people who have given up looking for work. That includes people who are um, underemployed, not just unemployed, but underemployed. That in, uh, includes people who are working part-time even though they want to be working full-time. Uh, and when you look at it that way, it's about 7.5% unemployment, not 3 point whatever they're trying to pretend, which is bullshit. And there's even a case to be made that's even higher than that. Um, I was sent recently a, a, a different way of breaking it down where they argue it's even way higher than uh, 7%. Now, I don't know how accurate that measurement is, but I do know the U6 is a hell of a lot more accurate than the one that's used officially. And now Trump actually used to use the U6 when he was trying to say the economy's bad even though they say it's good. Now he uses the official line. Why? Because it makes him look good. He's just full of shit, and he's making his case. That's all he does. Now, the reality is 78% of Americans are living paycheck to paycheck. Half of workers in this country make $30,000 a year or less. Everybody's up to their eyeballs in credit card debt and student loan debt. You know, medical bills are one of the top causes of bankruptcy. Our, our country's falling apart at the seams, man. 93,000 jobs outsourced and rising. So what do you do in a situation like that? Fudge the numbers. I don't know. Change the poverty line and we'll pretend like we lifted people out. That's all they got. That's all they got. But you're onto the trick. You know the trick. And you can call it out. And I'm going to warn the Democratic candidates, man. Do not walk into the trap. Because Amy Klobuchar just did the other day when Jake Tapper was like, oh, the economy's great, right? Don't you give Trump credit? And she was like, well, mm, maybe. Um, yeah, but I give the workers the credit. And I also say that he does mean tweets. And that's bad. Oh, God. Bernie, Tulsi, I hope you're listening. You better, when they try to say to you the economy's good, your response should just be, no, it's not. It's actually really bad. 
and let me explain how, and let me explain why, and let me explain the reality of the situation. If you don't do that, then you let them control the terms of the debate, and you let them relentlessly market their position even though it's bullshit. Okay. So the CBC, which is Canada's national news service, has uh, a really important article that they released on the issue of health care. Um, if this doesn't radicalize you on this issue, nothing will. Look, why desperate Americans are driving to Canada in caravans for insulin. Influx of Americans avoiding skyrocketing U.S. insulin prices raises concerns about Canadian supply. So you know how they, um, you know, fearmonger in this country about the, the caravans coming through Mexico, the invaders coming through Mexico to this country, hordes of them. Um, and what do we do? We fearmonger and we say, how dare you? Don't let them in here. They're bad people, yada, yada. You know the whole shtick. Well, what do you do when the roles are reversed? And now it's a caravan of Americans looking for help in Canada. Do you have that same principled stance against caravans, hordes of invaders are coming? <laughs> or do you say, listen, man, they're doing what they got to do. They want to survive. They can't afford the insulin here. What are they going to do? What are they going to do? They got to go there. Now, why does that same logic not apply to the southern border? But listen, they're escaping drug war violence. It's either join a drug gang and die at 23 or come to the U.S. and try to create a better life. What are you going to do? What do you want them to do? Seriously, what else do they have? What, what do you want them to do? There's obviously a contradiction there, and people will say, it's fine, the Americans go to Canada, they need the drugs, what are they going to do? But fuck the people coming in here through the southern border, fuck them. Okay, so I digress from that. Let me show you a pic in this article. This is of... Americans getting their insulin from Canada. Look, a vial of insulin in the U.S. is $300. You know what it is in Canada? $30. Just so you know, the idea of like, well, what do you mean? Again, naturalistic fallacy. Well, it's like this, so it has to make sense. No, 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 no. It didn't, we didn't just naturally get to this place. It was policy decisions that were made by people in power who are corrupt that have made it so Big Pharma can rob us dry. And that's what's happening. They're just robbing us. 300 bucks for insulin, and people need this to save their lives. They, they give an example in the article of a kid who died because he was rationing his insulin because he couldn't afford it. 20-some-odd-year-old kid. Unbelievable. Now, um, you might be thinking, well, how the fuck does Canada have it at 30 bucks and we have it at 300 bucks? How does that happen? Well, very simply, in Canada, they have the Patented Medicine Prices Review Board, which is a federal agency that establishes a maximum price that can be charged for the drug. So you have this board that basically says, okay, you can charge up to this much, and that's it. No more above that. What about the, what about the pharma companies? What if they, will they make enough money? Yeah, they're going to be all right. <laughs> they're going to be fine. The idea that, like, the government is this marauding band of pirates who are unreasonable, and they're like, let's only charge them three cents and put the pharma companies out of business so we don't have these drugs in existence anymore. 
That doesn't happen. All the right-wing fear-mongering on this is nonsense. It makes sense that there's a government board that says, yeah, here's the max you could charge, that's it. 300 bucks in the U.S. for life-saving medication? 30 in Canada. By the way, Canada's not even the best example of this. The U.K., which is even more socialized, in the U.K., they have a single-payer system that's tax money, public money, funding public institutions. So everything is public. And you know what it is there? It's anywhere from 10 to 20 bucks when you get medicine, when you go to the pharmacy and get medicine. And literally, doesn't matter how expensive it is, all you have to pay is 10 to 20 bucks. And it'll say on the bottle, funded by the U.K. taxpayer. So even if your medicine theoretically costs $20,000, you go there, they're like, okay, 20 bucks, thank you. And then they give it to you on the label, it says paid for by the U.K. taxpayer. I love that. Why the fuck? Why not? Why? Why would we not take, it's not like we don't have enough tax money. Of course we have enough tax money. We just choose to spend it on endless wars. We choose to spend it on fucking $4 billion a year as a subsidy to ExxonMobil. We choose to uh, give the big banks a bailout and $80 billion a year in quantitative easing. We choose to do that. We don't have to do that. We choose to do that. Our corrupt politicians choose to do that. Why wouldn't I want to fucking create a program where our tax money pays for medicine for people? I told you guys before, I'd be fucking happy. I'd be ecstatic to pay my taxes if I knew my money was going towards health care for people, uh, medicine for people, education for people, maybe universal daycare, universal uh, paid vacation time, month paid off, paid off every year for everybody. I'd love that shit. Instead, I know my money's going to blow up poor innocent people overseas and going as a subsidy to some Wall Street fuckheads. So I hate it. So it's, this is beyond fucked up. We know we can do it better. And now we have fucking, uh, you know, pharma refugees fleeing the U.S. to go to Canada because that's how bad our system has gotten. Now go ahead, Donald Trump. Brag a little bit more about how your economy is so awesome, you fucking idiot prick. All right, final story of the day. So it looks like our brilliant state governments are focusing on all the important issues. I love how tame that fucking... (laughs) This is when you Google image search internet porn and you pick the most tame thing you can find. (laughs) You see like blowjob 69 fucking anal and then there's this. And you're like, okay, I guess I got to go with that one because we got to keep it somewhat, you know, PG up in this bitch. Okay, so um, look at what they're focusing on. This is from the Las Vegas Journal Review. They explain more than a dozen states, a dozen, have moved to declare pornography a public health crisis, raising concerns among some experts who say the label goes too far and carries its own risks. The Arizona Senate approved a resolution this week calling for a systemic effort to prevent exposure to porn that's increasingly accessible to younger kids online. At least one legislative chamber has adopted a similar resolution in 15 other states. Quote, it is an epidemic in our society, and this makes a statement that we have a problem, said Arizona Senator Sylvia Allen, a Republican who blamed pornography for contributing to violence against women, sexual activity among teens, and unintended pregnancies. To which I say, citation needed, motherfucker. Because they've been saying this forever. Oh, my God, we have Internet porn. And, like, people commit crimes, so maybe Internet porn leads to crime, bro. Maybe Internet porn leads to, like, war. Maybe Internet porn leads to 
violence against women, the fuck? Nobody ever watched porn and then said, I now am okay with physically hurting women. Nobody ever did that. Nobody ever did that. I mean, they have such childish views on this stuff, and it's so ridiculous. The government should be focusing on this. By the way, what happened? Republicans always love to pretend like they're the party of freedom. What happened to freedom? What happened to, you know, from my cold, dead hands? That's funny in the context of porn. Pride from my cold, dead hands. <laughs> my wet, dead hands. <laughs> oh, that's funny. Um, yeah, but, I mean, seriously, this is what you're focusing on? No, whatever happened to freedom? Freedom is, yeah, this exists, and if you're a responsible adult, by all means, go right ahead and use it. And put on the fucking child uh, safety thing on your computer if you have kids and you don't want them looking at it. Problem solved. You want the fucking government getting involved in regulating porn on the internet? Uh, come on, man. This is this is so silly and so stupid. And this is, of course, the type of stupid shit that conservative states would be focusing on. By the way, it's not like what? You think there are no people in your state that don't have health care? They do. There are plenty of people who don't have health care in your state. There are plenty of people who are... Uh, you know, working full-time and not making enough money to survive. That's a thing. That's it. What about the fucking crumbling of our infrastructure in your state? You think, you don't think there are things you could do to fix that? Shouldn't you be focusing on that? Shouldn't you be focusing on more important issues and pressing issues? No, you want to get involved in everybody's fucking private life. And this reminded me, at the federal level, uh, Senator Josh Hawley wants to ban what's called loot boxes and microtransactions in video games. So there's this you know, blossoming video game industry, and part of the way that they fund the industry is they have in-game purchases. So you know, you're playing Candy Crush or whatever the fuck, and then it gives you an option A for X amount of money, you get this next level, or I don't know. I'm not too big of a gamer nowadays, especially for, you know, on apps and shit and on my phone. I'm more of an old-school kind of console-type character. But anyway, I digress from that. They want to ban the microtransactions in the video games. Why? Oh, it's exploitative towards children. What about the children? What about the children? That argument, throw it out. Throw it out. It's stupid. It's dumb. It's wrong. By that logic, should we ban alcohol? Some children sometimes get their hands on alcohol. Ban it. Should we ban all guns? Some children sometimes get their hands on guns. Ban it. Ban it. Microtransactions in video games. First of all, the statistics on that, I'm sure it's mostly reasonable age people buying it, 16 and up or whatever the fuck. And even if it's not, who gives a fuck? Who cares? If a kid, if one kid has a problem with it or some kids have a problem with it, let their parents take care of it and say, no, you're not allowed to buy it anymore. Fucking banning it? You want the government to ban it. I, this is the shit they're focused on. By the way, this is the same government that also banned online poker years ago. It's just whatever they don't like, they just, I don't know, I, I want to ban that. Little petty authoritarian goons. I don't like this. And in the case of the banning online gambling, it was more because of corruption. Because Sheldon Adelson and the actual casino owners were like, our business is down because this online poker thing banned that shit. And they banned it. And now I don't know who's behind this, you know, this idea of ban microtransactions in video games. But if it's not corruption, then it's just stupid, petty authoritarian garbage and nonsense. In the same way that banning fucking or um, declaring porn a public health crisis this is step one towards a longer goal of regulating it online and trying to get rid of it online. And um, this is the kind of big government I cannot stand. On social issues, I am super libertarian. On social issues, live and let live, man. Let freedom ring. You do whatever you want as long as you're not hurting anybody else. 
And our shitty state governments and federal government is the opposite. They want to get into your life in all these little ways and make your life worse because they deem you're not ready to handle microtransactions and fucking video games. And they want to say, you know, porn is affecting you in a negative way. When if anything, the opposite is probably true. Porn helps people deal with stress. And there are plenty of people in society who can't get laid. And you know what helps them a lot? Porn. So get out of our lives. Get out of our lives. Get out of our lives and stay out. All right, I'm done here, baby. I love you guys. We'll talk to you soon. Everybody enjoy the rest of your day.